For decades, the history of the DC Universe has been marked by its crisis-level events, status quo-altering storylines that have rewritten continuity while also providing a meta-commentary on DC Comics publishing itself, and all under a signature red glow. This is Red Skies, a 13-part podcast epic mining these events and the Superman of it all. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. This is Red Skies, Chapter 11, and joining me to discuss Doomsday Clock by Jeff Johns and Gary Frank is the host of the Krypton Report podcast, returning guest, Tyler Patrick. Welcome back. Hey, thank you for having me. I almost put in a red light above me because I have the bulbs just for like the red sky effect, like what's going on um, for all the video listeners. But man, I'm, I'm excited to talk Doomsday Clock. Um, it's definitely a book that I've been wanting to get back to. And I'm glad that we're doing this. Me too. From the start of this podcast, I knew we would get here to Doomsday Clock eventually, given the role that Superman ultimately plays in the story. I wasn't sure exactly where it would fit. And I'm glad that this is where it landed. It, it feels right. And I too have been looking forward to this. And even more so, since this is sandwiched in between metal and death metal. And by this point, people have heard our metal episode. I was not the biggest fan. As you and I are recording this, I'm in the process of reading for death metal. And similarly, I found it to be kind of a tough, a tough go. So to sort of have this palate cleanser in between, <laughs> I'm very grateful <laughs> nice. for that. Nice. And I'm so happy to have you here and to be able to talk about this. And as always, there is a ton to unpack and we'll get into all of it. But I guess a couple of big picture questions for you. Number one, you know my answer to this because this is chapter 11 of our crisis event here. But in your mind, do you equate Doomsday Clock with the other crisis level events in the DC universe or do you see it more in its own category? It's tricky because it was designed to be a much bigger event than what it became. Like you just said, it fell between metal and death metal, which the metal events were the crises that no one saw coming. Um. I think Doomsday Clock is almost like the like you have metal and then you have death metal. Doomsday Clock is almost like the death metal to Flashpoint, but it's kind of retconned in there with how they did it in Rebirth. And because of, I don't know what happened with the release schedule, Doomsday Clock kind of got pushed to the side of it's supposed to be continuity, like mainstream continuity. But and as we'll discuss and break down. It kind of is like it happened in continuity, but then it just kind of got pushed to the side and it could be its own side kind of story. It's not really an Elseworlds tale, but at the same time, it didn't have the, I think, the effect that the, that they were going for with it. So and it, it definitely has a huge effect on the, the series. And we'll talk about it because I did some other reading to help with this conversation as well. Gotcha. Gotcha. The other big picture question for you, and look, we have two Superman podcasters here, and we're talking about this book on a Superman podcast, but I guess, and this is something else that I want to get into, because I think you generally, depending on where you land with respect to Watchmen, I feel like that will color your perspective on Doomsday Clock considerably. And I guess in your mind, do you look at Doomsday Clock more as a Superman story or as a, a Watchmen story, a Watchmen sequel? 
Man, that is a great question. And I think because the first time I read it, I read it as it was coming out and it was like supposed to be one year, but it was like spread out over like two, two and a half years or something. And I just remember I kept telling myself, I'm going to go back and read it all. And then the next issue came out and I would just read that issue because I was like, I want to know what happens. And then going back this time, it is interesting because I think I don't really know how to answer that because I, I see the Superman story in it, but it's like, he's there, he disappears and then he's there again, but it's, but it's all about him. But yet it's like the watchman dealing with Superman. And if I think it walks a really fine line of if the watchman universe kind of collided with regular DC, um, I'm very surprised there wasn't out of all these other crises that you've been through where there's always like the spinoff title or the spinoff like connective book. Doomsday Clock was very much done in the same fashion of Watchmen. Like I'm no Watchmen historian, but I've, I've read it a couple of times. I have the trade. Um, and, you know, like there wasn't like, oh, the Batman versus the comedian or the Joker versus the comedian spinoff, you know. Or something like that. You know, it very much just followed the 12 issues compared to these others, which I really like about this story. Yes, I agree with you about walking a fine line. I think ultimately, for me, it it does succeed in being both. Both a follow-up to Watchmen, but also, also this ultimately beautiful Superman story that we're here to talk about. But to your point, yeah, it's not it's not a story that follows Superman and his exploits, right? It's more a story about the idea of Superman and what he means in the context of this universe and DC's publishing history. So it's far more meta than most of the other stories that we've talked about, but still to me, ultimately a a Superman story. Almost like a fan letter to the, to Superman in a way, because, you know, I think the one thing is like in this, you don't, you have Dr. Manhattan, you have Ozzy, you have the comedian show up and then you have a new Rorschach, but it's not, you know, we don't have night owl. We don't have silk specter. I mean, we, their secret identities are in there, but it doesn't have all of the watchman world. You know, we're, they're just kind of dropped into our world. So it's like a adventure with the, with the other watchman characters. I mean, I think it also kind of paints the, how do you feel towards before watchman? Like, do you, do you look at those stories? Cause I did review those a few years ago um, with a friend of mine and some of them we liked and some of them we didn't. And I think the Watchmen characters are very tricky on what to do with. It's like that property where like, Oh, what can we do with these? But you can't really do that much. And I think Doomsday Clock found a way to do something with them that still honored the original Watchmen story and really didn't take away from that. But some people will argue either way. That's the thing. I know people will feel very strongly in the opposite direction. And I do want to give some time to that perspective because I do get it. And I think there is, I do think there is an argument to be made on that side. So I can't imagine there are many DC Superman fans listening to this who aren't familiar with Doomsday Clock. But like you said, this is this 12 issue miniseries by Jeff Johns and Gary Frank that brought the Watchmen characters into the DC universe 
and by the end of the story revealed how Dr. Manhattan had manipulated the DC timeline following the Flashpoint. So we read Flashpoint, and at the end of it, it seems like it's Barry Allen's ineptitude that causes this new timeline, this new revised history. Well, I mean, with Pandora kind of overseeing and doing something, and that was never really fully got to explored, I feel, as much as they wanted to, because she was really this mysterious character. Yep. But we... I never, I never really gave Barry Allen the benefit of the doubt when it came to Pandora, even though I know she was there uh, in that double page spread as he was fixing, quote unquote, fixing the timeline. I still laid, laid the blame at the feet of <laughs> Barry Allen. But in any event. So did I. So but, did I. But beginning with the Rebirth special and continuing through this, we see the role that Dr. Manhattan played in changing the history of the DC universe, resulting in the new 52 timeline. And by the time we're done with Doomsday Clock, that pre-52 timeline has been restored, more or less, I suppose. But we can get into that. Yeah, because I read, I reread Rebirth, the Rebirth special. I had reread The Button a few months ago. And then I reread, I reread the last chapter in the Superman Reborn book. Mm-hmm. Um, because I feel like all those play into this. Um, the other thing... Though I know you're not there on the podcast. Maybe you'll get to it one day. But what was done with Doomsday Clock is similar to how I feel about what they did with Three Jokers. Where it's teased. It was supposed to be continuity. But it took so long that they kind of made this side story that told that story. That if you want it to be in the main canon, it can. Or it's this side story. Um, because that's stuff that Jeff Johns was setting up that just took forever to happen. Yes. So in terms of delays, absolutely. Uh, Both Doomsday Clock and Three Jokers also, also kind of take us into this new phase in the career of Jeff Johns, where he is in the wake of Alan Moore and he is channeling Alan Moore and writing sequels to Moore's classic DC stories in the style of Alan Moore. And I just, just as I talked about Scott Snyder, trying to be Grant Morrison when we talked about metal. Similarly here, I feel like you have this this kind of effect going on and I continue to wrestle with it because every creator, right, stands on the shoulders who came before in some way, shape or form. And even when we're talking about, again, I'll go back to the last episode and I know I was kind of hard on Scott Snyder, but look, Grant Morrison for Final Crisis took so many cues from Jack Kirby's Fourth World stuff. Now, there, I think a, a, a distinction I can draw is that so we had decades in between Whereas not a ton of time between Final Crisis, for example, and, and the metal events. So I, I think there, there, is, there is a distinction to be drawn there. But still, it's like we're in this phase of, of these creators like really, really channeling their predecessors in a way that I think is more pronounced than we had seen before. I think in the same vein, we're in this phase of these creators and these creative teams and trying to who can outdo each other's crisis. Because as you've proven on this podcast, like you had these long periods of time and now it's like every three years or every two, like they're like, this is some crisis level event. This is something that's happening here. And then the next writer wants to kind of undo what was done and do the new crisis. I mean, we just had death metal, uh, whatever the, I have the poster hanging up here, but whatever the infinite frontier was supposed to be doomsday clock and then dark crisis and anything else I might be missing. You know, even recently, the whole Lazarus thing was kind of like this, like, I almost like a mini crisis, midlife crisis. Um, 
that's that's the DC book I'm waiting for is a uh, Superman midlife crisis. <laughs> well, so. well, you know, at, at a certain point, you'll see everything. But the going back to the publishing history of this, uh, I want to I want to I do want to talk about this because from a personal standpoint, Doomsday Clock really really holds a special place for me. So it the first issue was published in November 2017. And it was originally intended to be monthly. At a certain point, they officially shifted to a bi-monthly schedule, but even then, I don't think it, it hit that. So issue 12 did not come out until over two years later in December 2019. See, and my, I knew li it. my life changed vastly in between those <laughs> issue one and issue 12, far more than you would expect from what was meant to be a year-long story. So when issue one came out, and I was at All Yeah Comics for the, for the release party for issue one and issue 12. So I started and ended in the same place at All Yeah Comics in Harrison, my local comic shop. And in November 2017, I had just successfully kickstarted what would become my fourth documentary film, My Comic Shop Country. So that fall, I ran the Kickstarter campaign. And for anyone who has done any kind of crowdfunding, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. It is a beast of a project. And I was so happy and proud and relieved when the Kickstarter succeeded and, and it concluded. And that November, December stretch was kind of like the in-between, right? The Kickstarter was done, but I was purposely, because I knew the making of the movie would be its own beast of a project. And it was, it was fun, but it was a ton of work. And I knew that was coming. I knew that was on the horizon. So I said, okay, well, you know, late fall through the holidays, just take it easy, relax, decompress. And so I remember being at All Yeah for that first issue, you know, just kind of basking in the success of the Kickstarter and, and not yet, not yet feeling burdened by the weight of making the movie. <laughs> so it's kind of like the perfect in between. By the time December 2019 rolled around, not only had I completed the movie, I had, I think, found my distributor at that point. So the, I knew the movie was coming out and most importantly, we had become parents. And when issue number one came out, it wasn't even on our, on our horizon. It's like, you know, it's sort of like, yeah, maybe at some point, but I mean, we were not really thinking about it. We're not planning, nothing like that. So, so much changed between those two nights at All Yeah Comics for me. And that's amazing how something small that people be like, what? But like something that you think about, you know, I look at it kind of, you know, it was a similar kind of experience of just like, when Man of Steel came out, what I was doing, and they announced BVS, but by the time BVS came out, I had, you know, moved back, had Solomon, some other stuff had happened I won't talk about, but like, and he was a year old. You know what I'm saying? And like, I, this, all this, like, you know, cause like I followed that movie religiously almost every little piece of, you know, information and the time it took for that to come out, like how much, like you just said, your life has changed. And, you know, when I think about when Doomsday Clock came out, we were preparing for what would be Justice League, you know, yes, yes. like it was like this, this, you know, like the Justice League movie is coming and all that, you know, and I remember, I remember the year after that, we did a commentary on Justice League, me and James did, and we even mentioned how we were still reading Doomsday Clock, waiting for it to finish. And I think about like, where like where my life was when that first came out and then when it finally ended was like a completely new life 
you know, almost. I mean, December of 2019, like Doomsday Clock finished before the world went to doom. I know. I know. We were in the crisis. We were in the crisis on CW, you know, um, by the time that came out. So it it, it is uh, fascinating how much happened. And it's part of maybe why I didn't enjoy the story as much the first time, because I think maybe one or two issues may have come out in that bi-monthly schedule. Because I remember when they got shifted to that, but then it just became, I just remember going to the comic book store and randomly, oh, there's a doomsday clock issue. Cool. Like it wasn't even on my radar. I wasn't keeping up with when it's coming out. I just would show up and there it is in my pool. I remember I read that first issue as soon as it came out and I did an episode on my other podcast, my comic shop history again, years ago now, just on that first issue, not knowing what was to come. And then if memory serves, I think I basically just kind of let the issues stockpile. I would, I would buy them and bring them home and just kind of put them on the pile. And it wasn't until pretty deep in where I actually sat down and read them in a row. And I think it was maybe a little bit before the final issue came out. And I just remember saying, wow, this is, this is not what I was expecting, but in a great way. And the statement that it ultimately makes about Superman, how this entire metaverse, but how this entire DC universe revolves and forms around Superman and responds to him and changes in his history. And even more importantly than that, and I know I'm jumping to the end of the story, but the effect that Superman has on a character like Dr. Manhattan and putting those two characters in contrast to each other, it was just, I was, I was so struck by it and even more so in rereading it. And honestly, I reread it a few nights ago and, you know, we ended up pushing our recording date a little bit. We had stuff going on. And, uh, so earlier tonight, I took a little time just to flip through it one more time. Cause it'd been a few nights and I was like, oh, let me just look through it again. And, and man, I'm tearing up. It's like, I'm tearing, especially when I'm in that last issue and Dr. Manhattan is talking about the nature of Superman yes. and just this core idea that no matter what changes, right, we always have the rocket arrives, a child is loved, Superman is made. And it's that elemental distillation of the entire mythology, not unlike what Morrison and Quietly do at the beginning of All-Star Superman, doomed planet, desperate mm-hmm. scientist, last hope. For everything else that swirls around when we talk about Superman, we talk about timeline and continuity changes, when we talk about these events, this core fundamental idea that he is loved and he returns that love to the world and that's Superman. It's like, it's so beautiful. I'm like <laughs> tearing up as I'm saying oh, it. No, I'm, I'm with you because it's, it just proves how basic the character is without getting into a lot of complex and you know, like you said, it was a surprise on how it ended because I always thought like Dr. Manhattan versus Superman in a fight. That's stupid. Cause the whole point of Dr. Manhattan is he's like a God that, you know, he could have just, you know, evaporate Superman if they were going to fight. But the ideology and the representation of what Superman means is much more important to Dr. Manhattan than, and it, it kind of goes back to, how Dr. Manhattan in Watchmen appreciates the comedian and appreciates Lori. And that scene where he's like, when he looks at her and he finds out the comedian's her father and he's like, through all of that, it brought you. And it's kind of like, it made me think of that. Like when he's looking at Superman, like through all this, what he represents there. And I think we're going to have this conversation. 
I think we could we could wait a year and have it again, and we would still find new things to talk about from this book. That's probably true, and it's funny because you know you've mentioned a couple of times about it's Doomsday Clock's sort of nebulous place within continuity, especially sandwiched between these death metal events. And while I still have not finished my death metal reading, I will by next week. Uh, you know, my understanding is that Snyder does reference Doctor Manhattan's role in things. So it, it's not like it's not acknowledged in any way, but certainly I agree with you. I think the way it was maybe originally set up and intended and intended to play out across the DC universe, maybe not necessarily what it ended up being, but it's like, well, it's one of those things that it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Right? Like we hold this book and we read it and it has meaning for us and we'll take it for what I, it is. The biggest thing I will, I'll, I'll point out is because it's all about Superman. Like the, what he means is if you look in the front pages, and I, I, I shared my tag on your your uh, social media, and it was on the app too. The drawing of Superman and the hint that he's meeting Dr. Manhattan is his reborn costume. Okay? Because that's what he was wearing when this book started. By the time this book comes out, it already become the Bendis where he brought back the trunks and changed the costume. So when Superman shows up in the suit in this book, he's already – in that Bendis timeline, if you if you will, you know, so we're we're already there because that just kind of tells you where they had to make shifts and change of how Superman's presented because he started where he was at the time in their continuity, and then he ends where they are in their continuity without anything really happening in between. So yeah. that just kind of gives you a hint at how long this took and how other books just kept going and didn't really wait. For this, for their stories to begin. Yeah, it's, t- I mean, I feel like in, in terms of real sort of tangible outcomes that then you do see reflected in other books, the return of the Justice Society, although I, I know they came back in Snyder's Justice League run. I haven't finished that arc yet, so I don't know how that plays out, but I know at least, at least temporarily I came back there before they came back permanently here. And, but most importantly, I suppose Ma and Pa Kent, right? Which we get at the yeah. end of here. And Which then, of course, will continue to be read, utilized in, in other stories. I haven't read Bendis's run since it first came out. Mom and Pa were there, weren't they? I think. I don't know. Like, you read it more recently than I did. I did, but um, to be honest, I don't – certainly not – uh, it hasn't been that long, but already I forgot. Certainly, I, just, I know them being there in the Philip Kennedy Johnson and Tom Taylor era. Exactly, and, yeah. So, yeah. Okay, we'll, we'll just roll with it. But Yeah, and but to your other point – the fact that this doesn't this didn't fall into the the structure of other events in that it was contained right and i think even delays and everything else aside it seems like it was always intended to be this there never seemed to be any yeah. even hint or whispers of oh we're going to have spin-offs and tie in miniseries and one shots it seemed like it was always meant to reflect again the original watchmen with this 12 issue self-contained you know it has matching trade dress i've seen it on bookstores uh, on, on shelves at bookstores and they line up next to each other. And and I, it seems like that was kind of always the intention with this and having, look, we've had a lot of fun with some of these other events that do have tie-ins. Uh, there are other instances where it's gotten a little bit, a little bit tedious and a little bit kind of like overkill. So again, I think there are places for it and, and, and other times where maybe it's best to really just drill down on the core story. I think this is one of those instances. So I'm really glad that they just focused on these, on these 12 and, Going back to what I was saying before, I feel like, I feel like where where DC succeeded with this, and again, I know people will disagree, but I do think again seeing it on the bookshelf 
at stores and seeing Watchmen and Doomsday Clock. I think this is something, yeah, if you are a true Watchmen diehard purist, you, I'm sure you would have issues with this. I think if you are a more casual Watchmen fan, if you know Watchmen more from the movie or from the HBO series, uh, I think this this is a great companion to give someone. And I think even if you're not really that into Watchmen, but you are a DC fan, you can still, it, it might be more, it might be less accessible if you really have no, you know, no familiarity with Watchmen. But I think there's still enough on the DC side where you can get into, I mean, I'd be curious to hear from any audience members who really have no history with Watchmen to know how well this worked. I actually would be very curious about this because I, my gut is it would more or less work, but I could be wrong. You know, you and I are both, you know, I think we weren't born yet when Watchmen came out. Uh, I think I'm, I, the first issue, I don't know. I might've been like one or just born. It was, 80, it was it 85, right? Yeah. And I was born in 85. So, um, but you know, we, we didn't grow, like we weren't reading comics. It came much later when we discovered it. And even then, like, you know, my son asked me, when I was reading this, he goes, can I read Watchmen? And I was like, no. And he, and he's like, okay, why? And then I, you know, I approach it, explain like, I was telling like, there's things that you have to learn before you can learn something else. You know, you have to build up a knowledge base to learn something else. And he, he understands that, you know? And I was like, when you're older, I was like, he's like, is there a movie? I said, yeah. I said, when you're older, we'll watch the movie together and we'll, you know, we'll talk about it. He's, he's a very deep thinker. Um, and, it's that kind of thing. Like I came to it when I was old enough to understand and appreciate the story. I'd also built up a history of reading comics. So when we got to this idea of the deconstruction of what the heroes are, I could appreciate it. Um, I think there's also a, a, a humorous in the background about Watchmen coming into the DC universe. Since the fact that they are originally Alan Moore wanted to use the Charlton characters that are DC characters to do this story and they're like, no, no, don't, don't use those, make your own. And then he just basically copied them and made new characters that resemble those characters. Um, I find that humorous. So, yeah, I want to, let's, let's talk about the, the watchman of it all. Right. Because this, this is important. Now I'll say for myself, I, I do not have a tremendous attachment to Watchmen. To be honest, I had never read it before the movie was announced. And I think that was what ultimately prompted me to read it. So I read it. I think the first time I read it was during college, which honestly was probably an appropriate time to to read it. Same here. Same here. I was in college. I bought the trade. My best bud roommate, Devin, he actually stayed up the whole night and read the entire like trade. And the next morning he hands him and says, now your turn. (laughs) And I was like, Oh snap. Um, So yeah, and I'm was, right there with you. And it was one of those things I, I read it. So again, I was probably, you know, I don't know, a junior in college and read it for the first time. And it's a heavy, dense read. Ultimately, though, I did enjoy it. I found it worthwhile. But it, for me, it always fell into this category. And I've, you know, I've said this before on the show, but it was always one of those things that I kind of appreciated and respected for what it accomplished and how it moved the medium forward. Although I know people will debate its its continuing effects. But in any event... It, it did something different, right? And I and I always admired and appreciated it, but was it something that I necessarily said, oh, I really enjoyed that and I can't wait to read it again? Not really. And to be honest, and this is going to be <laughs> heresy to some people. 
Oh, snap. In advance of, no, it's not that dramatic, but in advance of this recording, I wanted to refresh my recollection on Watchmen, but I just, I did not have it in me to read, to reread the 12 issues. So I watched Zack Snyder's ultimate cut of the movie, which is gorgeous. And I don't want to get on a whole Zack Snyder thing, but I know people have very mixed feelings on him. Generally, all of his works, it seems, including Watchmen, but I mean, it's such a faithful adaptation. I feel like he brought it to life visually in a, in a really beautiful way. And watching the ultimate cut in particular, if anyone hasn't watched it, it's three and a half hours. It has everything. It has the tales of the Black Freighter inserted at the appropriate points throughout the story. So it's, again, it's it's quite thorough. And I rewatched that just to sort of bring myself back up to speed before I got into this. I wanted to rewatch or reread Watchmen before we do this, but I just didn't have the time to be honest. Like I was going to just read it, not deal, like not read like all the back stuff. Um, I was going to just read the main story, skip the black freighter stuff um, and just kind of do it that way. But I just, I ran out of time, you know, and cause I didn't want to, cause I didn't know, I don't want to start too far back reading everything that we would get here. And I would be like, Oh, I can't remember. Um, and I don't want to dive into the whole movie, but you know, there were some things that, there's a couple lines that in the book of dialogue that I wish were in the movie. And then, you know, the changes in the movie, I can understand them. And for, I agree with some of them for the most part, um, because I think it, it works in a twofold, but that's another conversation. Acme comics is a locally owned and operated full service comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina for people of all ages and walks of life. Now in its 40th year, this multiple time Eisner award nominee features a significant contemporary and vintage back-issue selection, as the Acme team uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material. Mail-order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available anywhere via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the Acme cast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. Oh Yeah Comics celebrates and promotes everything that is wonderful about comics, toys, artwork, and the joy they bring to people. Visit them in person at one of their three locations, Harrison, New York, which happens to be my local comic shop, Skokie, Illinois, or Muncie, Indiana. If you have children and have been looking for a family-friendly store, look no further. Join Aw Yeah for exciting events, including creator signings, how-tos, and more. Visit awyeahcomics.com and follow Aw Yeah on social media for more. Their name says exactly how they feel about it. Say it with me. Aw, oh, yeah. I, oh, I, and I think it seems like we're on a, on this uh, similar wavelength here where we were probably well-situated to enjoy Doomsday Clock, Superman aside, because I feel like we had enough familiarity and understanding of and respect for Watchmen that this would be intriguing to us, but not necessarily a slavish devotion to it where we're offended by the mere existence of a sequel. Right. And I, I feel like that's, I mean, comics, it's like anything else. They're going to, if there's money to be made, they'll find a way for it. And you can either say, no, I don't count it or make your, or just enjoy the story for what it is. And I think my more fascination was what is the story going to be? Like, you know, I thought it was intriguing, especially when they, when they, when they, alluded that Dr. Manhattan was responsible for the new 52. I thought in a way like that's brilliant. Like that's a, that's a way to how, why things were changed and awkward. And as the story goes on and we, 
how <laughs> yeah, I don't want to say too much right now. We'll get there. No, it, it, it really is. And so kind of going along this track of just our personal feelings, our relationship to the material we're talking about, our reactions to things. So I talked about where I was when Doomsday Clock 1 and 12 came out, but I'm going to go back even further. I'm like, Dr. Manhattan here. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's November 2017. I'm at All Yeah Comics now. It's March 2016. <laughs> I'm at Spider's Web in Yonkers, New York. So when the Rebirth special came out, right, and we didn't know at the time exactly what Rebirth meant. There had been this whole ad campaign with the blue curtains and the word Rebirth, and we didn't know what that was leading to. And, and like the hand and them like reaching up exactly and so there was this rebirth one shot that jeff johns wrote that kicked all of this off and showcased the return of wally west he had been lost out of time trapped in the speed force trying to make his way back and he does not only does he make his way back but he comes back the messenger with this critical information that there was someone else there's this unseen outside force that was manipulating time Right. And at the end of that rebirth special, we see Batman find the button, the button from Watchmen. And then we have our little epilogue and we're on Mars and we're seeing the watch be put back together. And we're seeing the captions from Watchmen about nothing ever ends. And then you turn the page and the clock is ticking across the DC universe. And you're like, what the heck? What is this? Now, you get the blue. It shifts. The captions shift. <clears throat> To being blue, the last one, just like the way Dr. Manhattan's was. Exactly. Now, where, where I was at this point in time, and I know I've talked about this uh, on the show before, but uh, you know, I, I largely sat out the New 52, and I certainly was not reading anything on any regular basis. And the other thing that had happened during this time was my local comic shop closed in 2015. And so come 2016, I hadn't had a regular comic shop in a while, in a year almost, and I hadn't, re- I hadn't had a pull list in years and again, at the time, I was really not on board with the new 52. So this whole idea, a lot of things kind of converged for me. Side note, I will steal a few minutes with you later, and I do want to talk about convergence. I've had a couple of people say, oh, we noticed you don't, you're not doing an episode on convergence. It's like, no, I can't do a whole episode on convergence, but we'll talk about it for a minute. But uh, anyway, a few things kind of came together for me where I, I said, okay, even if it's just kind of as an experiment for myself, I want to try to get back into the routine of going to a comic shop again and having a pull list again. And and Rebirth felt like the perfect opportunity for that. And so I rem- it ended up being a relatively short-lived experience. Uh, but in any event, what I, uh, I remember the day that Rebirth number one came out, I left work and I went to the, this comic shop, the Spider's Web in Yonkers, and I picked it up. And I remember coming back and sitting in my, at the time, my little cubicle. It was the, I always feel like I've had various offices at where I always feel like that was the best one because it was at, no one knew it was back there. Later on, nice. as I got promoted, I had a, at a more prominent office and it was, it was nice in its own way, but people always knew where I was. There was something about that <laughs> back office. And I remember I got back and I remember sitting back there and reading it. And when I got to the end, it didn't do much for me. I won't lie. The whole idea of the Watchmen world converging with the DC universe. Like I said, I, I had an appreciation for Watchmen, but I, I wasn't a fan per se. And so the whole idea that this was going to be the explanation for how we ended up with the new 52 and, and maybe our way back to a pre 52 world, if, if that's where we're headed, I, I wasn't particularly intrigued by it, but then to actually see it play out, I ended up coming around big time. I just found the idea fascinating with Dr. Manhattan because 
you know, in the Watchmen book, Dr. Manhattan's not my favorite character, but out of all the before Watchmen books, I found his book the best. And I feel like that's when I kind of was like, there's more to do with this character. And so, yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. Fair. I, I, I will say I've never read the before Watchmen stuff. I own the, I own the trade that has the two mini series that Darwin Cook worked on. And the late great Darwin Cook at this point, I think, I think that's just about the only thing of his that I've not read. And I think there's a part of me that is just saving it. That it's like, I know I have this new, new to me, Darwin Cook work and I'll get there, but I haven't read any of it. I had a friend who loved Firefly, but refused to watch the last episode. <laughs> so he could always say that there's that one thing that like, there's more still out there. Yeah. So again, and I'm I, like, I don't, so I don't want to, I don't want to dwell on watching, but I really do think this is an important part of the conversation because there is a contingent of fans, right? Who again, object to the very existence of a sequel. And, and I guess they would include a prequel in that too. I know there was backlash at the time of before Watchmen, but in the realm of a sequel, a true sequel, I mean, this was one of those things. There's certain things that have felt sacred, right? Like, like sequelizing Watchmen or certain characters coming back to life, Bucky and Jason Todd and Barry Allen, you know, in our time as fans, we've seen all of that happen. And mm -hmm. I guess, I mean, I think I, I probably know your answer based on the conversation we've already had so far, but I mean, it, the, the I, or I guess just how, how do you respond if someone's like, no, like there should be no sequel to Watchmen. I'm like, why? Um, like, are you an Alan Moore purist? Um, it's my, my thing is this is a, a unique way of doing a sequel. If you much like, okay, the TV series is a, is a continuation from Watchmen, the book. It's not a continuation from Watchmen, the film. So to me, there's your Watchmen pure sequel. This is a continuation of those characters, but it has a certain spin on it that makes it more interesting and fascinating for a comic book reader. Uh, you know, especially when you're looking at the universe and what they're doing with it. To me, it's more intriguing of how can they pull this off? What are they bringing into this story? Um, you know, if you wanted to argue like no sequel to Watchmen, go argue David Lindelof with, uh, you know, doing the TV series. Um, because that's your true sequel to the, to the, the book. Yeah, that's interesting. I love, I mean, I thought the HBO show was great and they around the same time too. They were, I think they both ended the comic and the, and the show, I think right around the same time, if I'm not mistaken. So that sounds about right. Here's the thing. I, I think there are, I think there are two arguments and I find one more compelling than the other. So this is the lawyer in me. It's like, it's, <laughs> regardless of what I ultimately feel, I, f I find the exercise kind of interesting. So for those who feel like there shouldn't be a sequel because Alan Moore doesn't want a sequel or because a sequel had been off the table for so long, I, I don't, I don't find that compelling to be honest uh, and, and part of it is if you're telling stories in it's one thing if you're doing something creator-owned right and it's your own thing and you decide whether or not it continues but anything that's within a larger shared comic book universe inherent to that is at least the possibility that there will be some continuation some sort of follow-up that ideas will continue to be built upon and the other thing too Alan Moore is building upon what others have done and has done that in, across various works. So this idea that, you know, he refuses to have this done with his own work. I, again, to me, I, I like, I don't find that argument to be compelling. I mean, I, I, I get it. And I was trying to think of other 
kind of other instances where it's not something creator owned, but there's sort of more of like a gentleman's agreement, right? That this is going to be it. And the, the best thing that I can come up with is, is the Jack Knight Starman character that James Robinson used. Right. And, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't own the character, but there's kind of always been, and I, to my knowledge, I could be wrong. I don't think there's any sort of written contract about this. I think it's just sort of like a handshake agreement with DC. Like that was his character. And when he finished that series and took Jack, Jack Knight off the board, that was going to be it. And, and has remained that way. But at the same time, sure, someone's going to come up at some point and is going to want to do something with Jack Knight. And I feel like, I don't know. I feel like that's fair game. Mm. I mean, isn't that the the thing about the whole multiverse is, oh, that, you know, it's the same character, but that's on Earth 3000. So it's not the same Earth as this story. It's just similar. Isn't that, isn't that the cop out, you know, that we use for everything? Like, it's on a different Earth. Yeah. And then, and then the other argument that I don't know that this is, I'm sure this has been made, but I, it was more something I was thinking about to me, to me, I mean, one of the most striking aspects of the original Watchmen is the, the tragedy of the ending, right? That all of them, except Rorschach compromise so greatly to, to bring about this peace, right? And in the case of Ozymandias, he orchestrates everything, right? So he's he's sort of our ultimate culprit. But Dr. Manhattan and killing Rorschach and keeping silent, uh, even Night Owl and and Laurie as well, they're they're complicit in their silence. So to some degree or another, they've all compromised to to bring about or to to protect, to keep the secret. And you get to the end, and this whole business about the journal, right, seeing the light of day and all of this being undone when people find out that Ozymandias was the one responsible for this attack on New York that united the world and stopped the doomsday clock. And I, I think there's something to be said for not seeing what happens next, right? Like, I feel like that's kind of the point. You get to the end yeah. and it's like, we've gotten through all of this and this, we have this piece, but it's hanging on by a thread and this journal is going to undo all of it. So to then see that, Part of me feels like, yes, that does kind of undermine the original work to an extent where maybe it's more powerful, it's more impactful kind of in the not seeing, but knowing, the tragedy of knowing where it's going. So at the same time, do I think that should have prevented Doomsday Clock? No, I, I don't. But I think to me, that's kind of the best argument against doing it. You know, you know, my thing is even then you could do Doomsday Clock with Dr. Manhattan without really going back to the Watchmen world. You know, you didn't have to pull, because um, I mean, basically Dr. Manhattan brings a comedian back to life. You know, he pulls him from time. And I mean, you could have done something like that with, with Adrian and stuff. So you didn't even have to show the earth of the Watchmen earth if you didn't want to. Because I mean, they set it up in the book where Dr. Manhattan leaves. He says he's going to go explore other universe Maybe he'll even create life somewhere. And that's kind of where this picks up, where Dr. Manhattan goes somewhere else. Yeah. So, you know, you don't have to, you know, dip back in there. And I feel like, I feel like the reading it again and thinking about it, what if you were to tweak it now, the idea that Ozzy Mendez, Adrian Veidt, um, is revealed to be the culprit and touch on how we live in such a world with fake news and we can't trust anything like, you know, this source, this, you know, 
should we be investigating Adrian? He's such a great citizen. This source is just a journal of a, of a madman. Like it's not, you know, it's no big deal. Like I think that resonates more with our, our culture and times. Um, so if you, if you wanted to see what happened next kind of thing, like there, but yeah, I, I think you could have done doomsday clock and you didn't have, it didn't have to necessarily be the watchman part sequel to watchman as much as it's, the sequel, to, it's where Dr. Manhattan went after he left. I hear you. Yeah, you're right. They, they could have gone that route, but instead we do, we open in the world of Watchmen, right? And we see once again now the world on the brink of war. It's November 22nd, uh, 1992, 1992. And November 1992, of course, the death of Superman. So very uh, significant I did, date. I did find it very interesting that it picks up in the 90s. 92 and it makes me i'm more fascinated like um why so long like how long did it take for rorschach's journal to get out there i think it took i think Um, the idea is that because it was sent to this new frontiersman right this this fringe publication so i think the idea is that it wasn't like oh they printed this and instantly everything was undone i think it took a while to catch fire and the government investigated and so i think i I think it was kind of a slow burn and I, i think that accounts for you know, the, the amount of time that's passed. And so the world once again now is on the brink of war. And as, as the bombs start dropping, we have Ozymandias, Rorschach II, and Mime and Marionette on their way to our world, 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 <laughs> combined earth and world, uh, to our world to find Dr. Manhattan, this godlike being who they hope will be able to save their world. And like you said, had departed the Watchmen universe. Um, after he had discovered Ozymandias's actions and ended up again participating in it. So a few questions. One, I think a theory at the time among fans, and I think there are even hints of it in the books, when you look at Rebirth and the button and and we touched on the button a little bit when we did our Flashpoint episode. There wasn't a there wasn't really a ton to be had there, but a little bit of connective tissue between Rebirth and and, and this. Uh, but between those stories, I think there is this this theory that Dr. Manhattan had come and and either created the DC universe and or was someone in the DC universe in disguise. Are either of those theories something that you ever thought about or something that you think would have would have been intriguing to explore? Well, I mean, the, I think the biggest thing is one, I don't want the idea that he created the DC universe. I think that short short changes and cheapens everything. Um I think, you know, there was that whole like um, the because at the time we had the Doctor Oz going on oh, in yes. Rebirth, and you know there was the idea that that was Ozzy Mendes, or maybe that was Doctor Manhattan in disguise. Um, those were the two that I heard. I kind of thought it was Adrian, you know, at first. Um, but I mean, I think having Doctor, I mean, if you if you could have dug into some history and find some like character in the background of comics and pull from panels, like some just generic character that's kind of been there would have been amazing. Like that was Dr. Manhattan the whole time observing that could have been cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think there's evidence that it could have been, but yeah, I, I, I like where they went with it. I do too. I, I I'm, I'm fine that they didn't, that they didn't give credence to those theories. Mr. Oz, you know, we talked about it when we talked about the Jurgens rebirth run. The ultimate reveal that Mr. Oz was actually Jor-El, plucked from Krypton, you know, 
moments before its demise. I was not a fan then. I'm not a fan now. And I know there's been a lot of speculation about whether or not Jor-El was the original intention, uh, was originally intended to be Jor-El, or if maybe Ozymandias was was the initial plan and it changed, and whether it was Jeff Johns or DC dictating the shift. I don't know. I don't know if we'll, we'll ever know, but reading it, it... I don't know. A lot of this is colored by the fact that I really don't like what they did with Jor-El in that role. So it just, it feels yep. so wrong to me that it feels like that cannot have been the plan, <laughs> but I don't yep. know. And, I've, and a lot of it is I feel like Bendis just kind of like came in and swept it up under the rug, but that's another conversation breakdown of how they ended the Jor-El of it all. So, I mean, that's the thing. Again, we have the Jeff Johns written rebirth special, and then we have that four part, button business where reverse reverse flash shows up in the back cave and he takes the button uh, and he ends up on this other world with the blue light and he gets vaporized and uh, Barry and Bruce are tracking him. They end up in the flashpoint world. They have the very, you know, you know, tear uh, tear jerker of a moment with Thomas Wayne. Then they're back on the cosmic treadmill. There's this brief flash, no pun intended, where Jay Garrick materializes, but there's not enough of a connection there for him to hold on. And then at the end, we see, right, the blue hands holding, the blue fingers holding the the button, and we get the double-page tease of Doomsday Clock coming November 2017, right? So, again, it, it it's, a, it's a cool story. Again, more, I, I think it fit well in our episode on, on Flashpoint uh, to kind of continue the Thomas Wayne thread, and it was cool to see Barry and Bruce team up, but that's kind of it. It's a long-winded way of saying that between the button and the Oz effect— again, this occupies such a weird space because with those stories, it has kind of the 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 markings of a traditional kind of crisis event. But then again, Doomsday Clock ended up being very much, like very much its own thing. And I think reading it in a vacuum, it's beautiful to me. I think it, trying to read it more in the context of these other stories and and then certainly in between the metal events, it gets, it gets very jumbled. I feel like in my head canon... Doomsday Clock takes place before Metal. It just came out during. So, like, I feel like it takes place and then some time goes and then Metal. With Doomsday Clock, I would recommend reading just the Rebirth one-off. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of really good setup in there. I mean, you don't need it, but it's some really nice setup to really help connect to what this is trying to accomplish. And then, you know, the whole – the other thing was – we talked about was like you have the Superman reborn, which I think is, is important in the fact that in that storyline is where you basically have the idea that the Superman was at some point, I don't know if it was supposed to be Mr. Mrs. Pitalik or if it was during the new 52 and Dr. Manhattan Superman split into two, basically the two entities of the blue and the red energies. And by those coming together, it, it solidifies the new 52 and the pre new 52 universe is like one because then it creates the one whole Superman. Um, so it's no longer the post crisis or the new 52. It's now this one Superman. that's both. And that's kind of because of the Superman core that doomsday clock is that I think that's, what's important to think about with that story is now you have this pure kind of all history matters for Superman uh, it's all one character, but yet he has done it all somehow. Somehow, time. but do we include do we include the relationship with Wonder Woman? I see. I wonder about that. 
hyper time. I'm just saying it, it happened, but somehow it didn't happen. It happened, you know, whatever. Um, well, but so- I just think it's an important of where that character gets to. Cause then when we get in here, like it, it is weird because I'm checking something. I don't keep going. I'll, I'm looking for something. No, so the reborn aspect is interesting, and I this is as good a point as any to talk about convergence. So, again, I so convergence for anyone not familiar was this uh, two month event that in the industry was kind of known as a quote unquote band aid to cover DC as they were moving offices from New York to Burbank, and the idea was they would have this event run for two months in lieu of their regular titles. So that they had product flowing while they were in this state of transition, moving offices. I've not read it. The only thing that I've read is the two-parter by Dan Jurgens and Lee Weeks, right? Where mm-hmm. we catch up with the pre-Flashpoint, pre-52, uh, Superman and Lois, and where they have their son, John. And my understanding of this event from that limited reading and just from Wikipedia is that the gist of the story is Brainiac has plucked various characters from from timelines that are no more, and he's placed them in these domes and made them to do battle with each other. Is that is that correct? I mean, basically, if you think of Brainiac as Galactus, he has his herald Talos, who basically is like the Silver Surfer. And basically, yeah, he plucked cities from timelines before they were destroyed i don't remember all the machinations of it but that was basically and basically at one point he opens all the bottles they're all all these cities are bottled on a planet and he lets people go and fight and because uh superman the post-crisis superman was bottled you know him and lois had a child because he was depowered and clark's fighting crime just as clark you know then um it's been a while. I mean, it's been a while since I've read it because once again in there, um, Thomas Wayne Batman is there because the flashpoint, there is a city of flashpoint because it's actually Thomas Wayne who is the doctor that's there when John is born. Right. He's right. the doctor that helps deliver John, um, which I think is beautiful. And I, I, as much as I love Tom Taylor, I don't like his change to John's origin that he tried to, that he did in the recent, his recent run. Um, so that's kind of the thing. And at the end of it, after everyone battles is they're creating a new earth Two, And they're sending a bunch of the characters to that new earth Two Because if you read earth Two, like, you know, Superman died. Uh, and then eventually Val Zod became uh, the Superman of that earth. So they're sending them back, you know, this new, the planet and everything, a lot of the characters, but Superman, Lois and John, baby John are sent kind of back in time to the main earth. And then we have that whole mini where they're on our earth, but he's not coming out of Superman. He dons a black costume, grows a beard and he's doing Superman things without being noticed. Cause he's letting this world Superman grow. Cause he's much younger and they're Lois, uh, Clark and John white. And they live on a farm in New York and they're doing. She's writer X. It's a, it's a great miniseries by Jurgens. Mm-hmm. But you know they're doing they're doing that. And then the whole thing is, um, basically, the New Fifty Two Superman dies, and then all of a sudden, when Rebirth is starting, this other Superman shows up, and you know he's Superman, but yet 
He doesn't have the history with Batman. He doesn't have the history with Wonder Woman. He's kind of this outsider. And that's kind of, like I said, why the reborn is important in the doomsday clock. Cause with through the reborn is when that post uh, crisis Superman and then the new 52 merge into one character. And what I was looking up is in the first issue, we, we have a Clark and Lois scene. There's no mention of John. Right. Not like, in that I scene. Don't, and I don't remember if he's mentioned in the book at all. He is. I wasn't thinking yeah. of so okay. so later on, so you know, like a year and a half later, um, when they're at the Daily Planet and and Perry is giving Lois a hard time, she makes a crack about is it too late uh, to uh, you know take away his status as John's godparent? And Clark is like, yeah, about ten years yeah, too late. You're right. So he is referenced, yeah, right. but later, okay. later, not and yeah, we don't see or have any reference of him in that first issue. But that's later on, and what makes me wonder too is once again we're talking about how it seems like they slightly adjusted. Superman's role in this because we don't see him in the costume in the first, you know, uh, thing. So I don't know. I'm just talking. Yeah. The, the reborn stuff was, I mean, I, interesting, I guess it, to me, it just became, it, it just got so convoluted. It's like, try explaining that to a lay person. It's insane. But at the same time, I just, I just tried and it sucked. I mean, I no, no, you did great. But I mean, I, I guess I appreciate the attempt to reconcile and, Look, it shows how Superman occupies a very distinct spot because when you look at the main DC universe, right, from because once re, you know, that's the thing with rebirth. It's not like, oh, the they flip the switch and it's it's back to the continuity that we were familiar with. It's like we're still, even in the rebirth era, uh, we're still in that new 52 timeline, uh, essentially. But with Superman, and again, Superman occupies this unique spot because it's not like you have a post-crisis Batman and a new 52 Batman, right? It was very much that, right. this version. Of, did they ever explain why, and I reread the end of Reborn too, and maybe I glossed over it or it was explained in Convergence or it was never explained. Why why the post-crisis Superman and Lois survived? Did Mixius Spitalik talk about it? Was it just the idea that their love was so strong? Like they were, that's why those characters were split when all of the other ones weren't when the new 52 was created? I mean, they survived because they were on that planet. Because um, the the way I took it is they were on that planet, and then when they were dropped on our Earth, it was, it was the New 52 time. Things were already in motion. So it had already been the New 52, and then they arrived on our Earth. So if I remember correctly, I don't think the New 52 characters are really part of the Convergence story. Okay. Like, I ha- I'd have to read... Dig into it, you know what I'm saying? But no, no, no. I, I hear, and, I, I, and I'm putting you on the spot with this. So I appreciate what and, you, what you remember. Because in the Reborn, there is Mixie makes a couple of allusions to something bigger and more powerful coming, or you're gonna met, you're gonna anger him. He said that a couple of times, so there is in that allusions to something else. Gotcha. And at the and at the time, I'm just reading it like, okay, you know, whatever, you know. But I think there is. I won't go down the whole rabbit hole if I feel like that was teased in Grant Morrison's run too, but the whole Superman being split thing. Um, in, in Doomsday Clock, it's not until issue seven that Dr. Manhattan really enters the story, but that's where we get the first, the first hint, more than a hint, of what he actually did to change the timeline. And over the course of the rest of the issues, particularly issue 10 and issue 12, it becomes much clearer exactly what he did and why he did it. And 
again, we can, you know, we can talk about any aspect of the story that you like, but since we're already an hour in, it's like, I want to make sure we, we really hit on this because especially in the context of these events, right? Uh, I'll keep quiet. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're all, no, not at all. This is what, Hey, this is what we're here for. But, uh, you know, what we ultimately find is that he arrived in the DC universe on April 18th, 1938, right? The date when action comics number one was published. Yes. Right? And he sees Superman debut and he sees the formation of the justice society and all of that. Then he sees that the timeline has shifted and now Superman's arrival is 1956, right? The dawn of the Silver Age. And then later it's 1986, right? With John Byrne's Man of Steel post-Crisis on Infinite Earths. And then later it's 2006 and Secret Origin with the, you know, uh, post-Infinite Crisis. And so he recognizes that there are these outside forces and he even name checks them in, in one of the panels where he references, I think, the Anti-Monitor and Extant from, uh, uh, yes. you know, from Zero Hour and Crisis. So... Uh, he recognizes that Superman's timeline is affected by these outside forces, but that the universe reforms around him essentially, right? And that he's at the center of it. And it sparks ultimately <clears throat> this curiosity about Superman's role in this universe. And out of this ultimately cold curiosity, it seems, right? He takes it upon himself to experiment to tinker to i think the i forget the exact line but it's something like to change the past to challenge the future or something you know something to yeah. that effect right and what he does is he goes back to the moment where alan scott is in that train accident and where he would reach for and obtain the green lantern that would save his life and transform him into one of the earliest superheroes and a founding member of the justice society he moves the lantern just out of reach. Yeah, just out of reach. So Alan Scott dies and doesn't become Green Lantern. We don't have the Justice Society. And apparently without the Justice Society, Clark doesn't have the inspiration to become Superboy. And absent Superboy, of course, will no longer get the Legion of Superheroes in the far future. But more immediately, he won't be there to save Jonathan and Martha when they're hit by a drunk driver. And they'll die. And of course, as we've talked about so many times, that was one of the, uh, you know, defining, you know, characteristics and, and distinctions between the post-crisis and the new 52 Superman, the fact that Jonathan and Martha had died here. And th so that kind of shows, again, exactly what those machinations were, what he did in order to enact the changes that he did. So that's just kind of a, a, an overview of it. But I mean, I guess just you know, when you first read it and, and, and you know, now upon reread and everything, I mean, just what, what is your reaction to exactly what he did and the effects that it had? Did it all track for you? It, it did because I think they do a really good job of like how little things build and they find a way to make it work to why this happens to this happens and this happens. And the idea of like the, he, um, they talk about the, the Superman when he, you know, basically the new the two Superman being a little younger, a little more angrier, but still representing that hope and that light and what he does. And, you know, by removing Ma and Pa at a younger point, both of them, how does that affect Superman? How he still comes out to be, you know, himself. And I'm, I'm flipping through right now, just looking for some of those panels to back up with him and everything. I think it makes sense. Um like him just tinkering with time. I mean, 
it's a great way of explaining like a little inconsistency in, in writing or a little inconsistencies in um, just like the, the overall storytelling. Um, but I, I just find it, it works. I mean, in the overall narrative of Doomsday Clock, the thing that I question is, I feel like where is the moment before? You know, we're, we're talking about the Superman aspect so much, but where we jump into this, where the world is, and even where Batman is, where so many people are against him, is like, I was trying to figure out where does that fall in the timeline? Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store. Established in 1982 and under new ownership since 2020, Moose sells a wide selection of new and old comics from every publisher, action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose in Whippany, New Jersey the next time you're in the Garden State. And be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. We are an affiliate of BCW Supplies, so the next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP to save 10% on your order. That's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions. It helps support the show too. Thank you. Filmmakers and movie fans alike should be sure to attend these film festivals. Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. On a personal note, my short film, By Spoon, The J. Mizell Story, played at these fests, so I know firsthand what fun and well-run events they are. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts, available via a shared universe network. I don't think that's really something you can reconcile. So I think what you're referring... So, right, so this idea of the Superman theory, right? The notion that the United States has the vast, vast majority of metahumans on the planet, something like 97%, right? And it's raising all of these questions about why are there so many metahumans in the United States relative to the rest of the world? And this Superman theory, seemingly backed up by secret documents, supports the notion that the government is creating metahumans, that many of these these characters, and Firestorm most notably, wasn't a wasn't an accident. It wasn't an accident, but was rather this calculated, uh, you know, planned maneuver, right, to create superheroes, right, by the government. And so this sort of inflames world affairs and tensions rise, and uh, Black Adam opens up conduct to to any metahuman, right, as kind of a safe haven, and that you know that creates further conflict there, leading to a page. Uh, so there's this moment where uh, Firestorm goes to Russia, right? Because the superheroes there have been calling him out, right? And they kind of corner him and he loses control of his powers and he turns all of these civilians to glass, right? And then he mm-hmm. he, he flees. And Superman thinks he's gone to Black Adam, right? For sanctuary. And so he goes to Black Adam and there's this page where Superman's there and they and they shake hands. And it's after after that, <laughs> that end credit scene in the black adam movie and then rereading this you know it's like you know whether it was in a pre-production meeting or a fan tagging him on social media like you know someone showed that to dwayne johnson they were like look 
this is what you can build. And he was like, yes. And we all know how that went. But in any event, uh, it's a, it's a cool scene between the two of them and, and, uh, you know, seeing them stand toe to toe and all that. And again, Superman ultimately finds Firestorm, uh, hiding out in Russia, but he's able to undo the effects in any event that leads to larger, larger aspects. But yeah, this whole idea, the thing that I think was most interesting, uh, is that seemingly it's true. Right. Like as I'm talking about this for anyone who hasn't read it, you probably think, oh, and then it turns out it's a plot from one of the villains. But what we learn from the back matter, right, because just like Watchmen, Doomsday Clock at the end of each issue has whether it's letters or, you know, all all written for the story. Right. Letters or news clippings or secret documents, whatever, whatever it might be between that and just the main story itself. This idea that I, I think Ozymandias literally says at one point it's at least partially true. So, yeah. I mean, you find out that they basically engineered the creation of Firestorm. Yeah, Martin Stein made that an, accident and I, happen. And that's that is the part the the social political stuff that's in this um, that fits kind of the Watchmen tone with the and that and how the world's turned against Batman. That's the stuff, like you said. I don't feel like I can reconcile where it takes place in any kind of continuity because it feels like I missed something. Like that's kind of where I feel like I should have had a one-off story leading into this about how the how everything got there. Um, because it feels like all of a sudden, you know, we're reading rebirth stuff, and then all of a sudden the world's on a brink of its own crisis. And I don't mean that pun intended. Um, and that's the stuff that I'm like, this is heavy, but I feel like there wasn't the buildup, and that's the kind of stuff that makes me feel like this is more of the outlier doomsday clock where it doesn't fit as nice in the continuity. It kind of has like, we're picking up an else world trade or kind of, you know, flipping through. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those things to my knowledge, audience, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I don't know of any instances where the Superman theory has been referenced or followed up anywhere else. It seems to be pretty, pretty confined to doomsday clock. And it's, it is one of those things where we're kind of, we're kind of, thrown into that in the middle of the action, right? That this theory has already been, you know, been shared with the public and you have these protests in the streets and everything. And again, the tensions between the world, uh, you know, uh, political powers are rising. I don't have as much of an issue with that as I do with the idea that that might've been the, like, it could have been its own story and it maybe should have been its own story. It's kind of fascinating, especially if, if we're saying that it's true, right? So yeah. I feel like there was a, I feel like there was a missed opportunity. I feel like it sort of gets lost in the shuffle here. This whole idea of the Superman theory is like, this is fascinating. <laughs> it, I I agree. I mean, there is this story is much like Watchmen. It's very layered and dense. I mean, we haven't even touched on the Carver Coleman stuff, the marionette and the mime and what they kind of represent, because I think. When I read the first time, I was like, this is interesting, but what is this? And I think, I know, reading the second time, I had more appreciation for those stories. So I kind of understood more of how they fit and what they represented on the Dr. Manhattan side more. Um, And I I will say this. I actually really like the depiction of Batman in this story. Because Batman gets beat. He makes mistakes. You know, he's not the all-knowing, never, you know, perfect Batman, you know, he he locks Rorschach up at Arkham Asylum because he comes to he thinks he's crazy. 
He, apo- he apologizes quick, yeah. later. It's all right. <laughs> yeah. But even that, it felt, uh, felt like a real character growth for Bruce to even admit he, he was wrong and to apologize. And I, I, that's, that's why I liked, you know, this, this Batman. Um, so there, there's, a, there's like a lot of, of denseness. I mean, just the whole like firestorm as a character, not being able to like re like he could transmute something, but then he couldn't undo it and just trying to fix it. And I mean, that, that whole scene where he saved the one kid and turned them back and he's telling everyone, I can fix this. And they're like, just the, you know, this, the Superman's like, wait, listen. And it like, everyone turns on Superman and like the world turns on Superman and they're destroying like, and then of course we find out that Ozzy, good old Adrian Veidt had a little bit of hand in it. So of kind of pushing things in this world, you know, even farther. Um, it just, it gets very layered and dense. And like you said, the Superman theory thing is fascinating. And it just kind of like, it's like this catalyst that, we throw it out there to be the catalyst, but we never really follow up with it. It's funny. Because I, I when, when the story's done and over with, it's like, it's still a thing <laughs> that doesn't do anything. Yeah. You know, the, so I feel like that's, I mean, other than the end with, between Superman and, and Manhattan, I feel like that the stretch that we're talking about with Superman and Firestorm and Black Adam is, is kind of the most Superman that we get in the story again, in the first issue, it's funny, you know, and I remember again, I did that, you know, the other podcast episode years ago on just that first issue. It's like, you know, you read the whole thing and we're just in the Watchmen world. Right. And then we cut to our world and Clark is having this nightmare about the night his parents died. He wakes up. Right. And he's startled. And Lois is like, when's the last time you had a nightmare? He's like, I've never had one. And it's like, That's the note we end on. And, but like we said before, you know, there's not a ton of Superman throughout, but I feel like maybe we, maybe we can sort of reconcile this because it's, while it's ultimately, I do believe, about the idea of Superman, it's still, it's not a Superman story in the sense that he's not our point of view character. We're not following Superman through this. And so I feel like kind of from from a, just a matter of perspective, we're seeing this, I don't want to even say through the eyes of Dr. Manhattan, but like maybe more through the Watchmen lens. So it's like we're getting more glimpses into this DC universe, right? As opposed to a story you know, from within the DC universe where we would have had more of the building blocks of this. And maybe that's how we can answer. I mean, from a larger perspective, again, I still feel like, hey, this was worth exploring and it does feel a little bit like, okay, we didn't really see how it started and then it never really seems to go anywhere. But but maybe that perspective idea helps account for for why it feels the way it does. It does um, because there is no, like who 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 is your protagonist in this story? You know, because like you, like, Hope. It's hope. Super, hope, yeah. Because both Superman and Manhattan are there. They're present. They, you know, you feel them in the story, but they're not really like they appear here and there, but they're not in every issue continuing the story and, you know, really moving it forward. Yeah. Like you, and also, I mean, you have it. Go ahead. No, no, please go. Because you have Adrian, what he's doing, moving it forward to find Manhattan. And then it's like he shows up and then he kind of takes over and finishes out with us. So. And that's the thing. The structure is kind of interesting. Uh, and I know that they – so I, I currently – I know they did an absolute, which I don't have. But I do own the, the trade paperback that collects the entire thing. But I know that before that they did two hardcovers 
collecting issues one through six and then seven through 12. It probably reads fine like that because it really, it almost is bifurcated where the first half of the story is, is a lot more driven by, again, this motley crew that shows up from the Watchmen universe, right? And you see them having these interactions with the DC characters where, again, I've never like longed for that. I, I'm, I've never been in the camp of, oh man, it would be so cool to see Batman and Rorschach together. But it's like, if that's your jam, you get Batman and Rorschach, you get Ozymandias and Luther, uh, you get Mime and Marionette and Joker, right? So you get a lot of those match, and then the comedian, right? So you get a lot of those matchups that if you were sort of fan casting some of these, you know, some of these interactions. But then once, Again, once especially we get to seven and, you you know, Manhattan enters the picture and you start to see more of it from his perspective, there's definitely a shift. I mean, I don't know. Part of me feels like there's maybe something lacking in the structure in terms of how it shifts, or maybe there is something nuanced there that it's like, oh, no, it's actually it actually works. I, I don't know. But there there definitely is a shift during the story, no doubt. That would be interesting. If I, if I read it again, to try to read it in the, the six – like read the six issues straight, wait a day or two, then do the other uh, six to kind of see if, you know, where I break up and, you know, cause like I would be more fascinated just like the question and Rorschach together, like, you know, the comedian and peacemaker, like the ones that are supposed to be there, you know, night owl and blue beetle hanging out. Like, what does that look like? Cause did you notice how none of those characters show up in this story? No. Well, Dan and Lori do at the very end. But yeah, we don't get those but, interactions. No, but, I mean, so, but I mean, like, we don't get Blue Beetle. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. None of the DC, like, versions of the Watchmen characters show, except Captain Adam. Right. Because Captain Adam is supposedly where the Dr. Manhattan uh, came from. You know, it's you know I got to I gotta say, though, it's, it's interesting looking at all these events back to back because, you know, you just... You, Nothing's set in stone, right? And you really, I think, have to be pretty nimble with a lot of this because characters like Ted Cord, for example, right? Uh, you know, we had that whole countdown special before Infinite Crisis where he's died, you know, and then he's back. Uh, or, you know, with Ralph Dibney. Or it's like, you know, a lot of these characters who, you know, much ado about their demise and then they'll come back, uh, you know. I don't know. It's It's just, I don't know what my point is other than, yeah, I, I think just sort of recognizing the the fleeting nature of of a lot of this stuff, right? And, and kind of the ebbs and flows, right? Like everyone everyone dies and everyone comes back, and you just kind of roll with it. I think you can appreciate in Doomsday Clock, like I said, the second reading, I appreciated more of like the mime and marionette stories, you know? Because at first I was I thought I was like, what is this? And the Carver Coleman stuff, like when you if you were to you look at it in the whole you know, the whole aspect, I think it's interesting, especially like what trying to figure out what exactly they're trying to say with mime and marionette, you know, these, these two, like we get their whole story, you know, these, these um, basically two outcast immigrant children who basically become friends, fall in love when they're, what would you say? 10, mm-hmm. you know, and kind of start their life of crime. They have a kid that gets taken away, um, and they have no idea where it's at. We find out that um, that kid goes somewhere special, <laughs> and then she gets pregnant again. And Manhattan sees something 
You know, it's like when he looks at her and he finds out she was pregnant, he saw something in them. And that's why, you know, he spared them. Because they make the reference to like, I've, I've, you know, I've seen Dr. Manhattan allow a pregnant woman to be killed without even blinking or even, you know, caring. Right. But there was something that he saw in their future. And I think that's what makes him so fascinating as a character is just how he perceives time <laughs> and existence. Yeah, I know. I have to say, uh, you know, in rewatching the movie and then and reading this, um, yeah, I did think about what effect that would have on you if you could see your future and the, the you know this idea that everything everything would feel preordained, right? If you know everything that's going to happen, you know how that would just kind of warp your view. I also speaking of the movie, I do have to give a shout out to Billy Crudup who played Doctor Manhattan in the movie because as on everything that I'm reading. In Doomsday Clock, I'm reading it in his voice, and I feel yep. like it gives it such such a, a powerful effect, more so than if I had only read the book and and were just kind of you know uh, using my imagination as to what he would sound like. So shout out to him. I I, I really like Billy Crudup. I like. I mean, I, frankly, all the people that were cast in Watchmen, I think, were amazing. Yeah, but with with Mime and Marionette, yeah. Well, I mean, we ultimately find out when we get to the closing pages of of Doomsday Clock is Doctor Manhattan after this experience with Superman, which of course we'll circle back to. Uh, he's gone back to the Watchmen universe, uh, which has been ravaged by nuclear war, and he remakes it essentially, walking across the planet. It seems, and uh, before he, as the, as he says, expends the last of his energy, seemingly ending killing right? himself. Yeah, seemingly ending but himself. But Anthony, when you say he's being rebirthed, ah, uh-huh, yes. <laughs> uh, but he he takes Mime and Marionette's son and delivers delivers him to uh, to Dan, aka Night Owl, and Lori, aka uh, Silk Spectre. Right? Silk, I always get the, what yeah. Sally was Sally Jupiter. Yeah, because it's Silk Spectre and then Silk Spectre. The second too. got it. Because uh, there's Night Owl and then Night Owl too, right? So they're they're together and they're living out in the suburbs and hiding under the name Hollis, right? In a nod to the to the original Night Owl, uh, and this young boy who's now you know kind of been cared for by Doctor Manhattan to to a point and given the name of Clark, right? Shows up at their doorstep and more importantly, what what Doctor Manhattan you know tells us before we see this happen is that. He has, I guess, learned learned the, the the lesson that we talked about earlier about the importance of the child being loved and then returning that love to the world, right? So he recognizes the importance of placing Mime and Marionette's child, who he names Clark, with Dan and Lori, so that they can so that they can love him and raise him because he has seen what this child will do. And going back to that moment in the during the bank robbery in the past with Mime and Marionette, yeah, the reason he lets them live isn't just because she's pregnant, because like you said, he's stood by when comedian. Uh, murder the pregnant woman in Vietnam, but because he sees what this child will become. So again, it, it certainly all it certainly all connects. But okay, I want to going back to the Jeff Johns of it all. Wait, hold, hold yeah. one second. I want to. I just want to. I look at it because like it's interesting because Mime and Marionette are able to keep their second child, which is their daughter. Their first child that they were searching for, their son, is neat because it's like it's once again Doctor Manhattan manipulating time of when he takes that child. In a way, he infuses the last of his power into this baby, into the child. And in, a, in essence, he brings hope to the Watchmen world by putting a Clark, a the Superman, 
into their world. He kind of creates Superman for their world. I think that's, yeah, I think that's a beautiful way of putting it, right? Because like what was missing from that world? <laughs> right, uh, was was the hope. I mean, isn't that kind of the whole thing is like with, with Watchmen, like going back is like how dark it got, how serious it got. It had no real hope for it. Um, and then maybe in 20 years or something, some hotshot comic book writer is going to take this and then do a, a series of the Superman of the Watchmen world. You know, that Clark and what his world looks like. Yeah, I mean, look, we've gotten a sequel, and uh, we we love a trilogy, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. And and look, I mean, in Flashpoint Beyond, Jeff Johns he utilized Mime and Marionette at the beginning. They helped Batman steal the globe that he'll ultimately place the Flashpoint timeline within. And at the end of that story, we go back to the Watchmen world, and that young girl who is who we see at the end of Doomsday Clock, who who becomes nostalgia on her sixteenth birthday. Right. Uh, and stands outside the prison that's holding Ozymandias. Like, you know, she, she pops up at the end of Flashpoint. So whether it's John's or someone else, I mean, clearly the potential is there to do more with these characters. But I, yeah, I love the way you put it as far as, you know, kind of creating a Superman for their world. Uh, you know, with, with Jeff Johns, I, I, I guess going back to what I was saying before, it, it's one thing to sort of sequelize something that, you know, the original creator doesn't want to have a sequel or that you wouldn't expect to see a sequel. Uh, and on the one hand, you know, you certainly want to make sure that the, you know, the, the voices are in keeping with what we know, right. From Watchmen, of course, but you know, he goes a step further, right? I mean, it really is written in the style of Watchmen, you know, beyond just capturing characters voices, you know, he and Gary Frank and, you know, Gary Frank, the, the art on this is incredible. You know, they utilize that nine panel grid layout. Yep. And we have that that back matter material, and we have it's not Tales of the Black Freighter, but we have these scenes from the movie The Adjournment, uh, starring yes. uh, Carver Coleman as this uh, private investigator, Nathaniel Dusk. And I guess my question to you is, uh, I, I don't even know how to phrase it, but you know, it, writing a story, you know, kind of mimicking right the style of of the the writer who wrote the original work i mean does it did it did it did it feel appropriate did it feel did it feel off in any way what was your reaction to that i feel like it was just enough to feel part of it but just if you had tried to do this and not say that it was part of watchman style it'd feel like you're ripping off watchman but you did he, john's did it just enough that it 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 works. I mean, that's the easiest way for me to say is like, it feels like the, the, the watchman of like the DC universe. And like we, like I said earlier, like it's, it's a sequel, but at the same time, it, it didn't have to be, we didn't, we didn't need the stuff from the Watchmen universe. We could have just, where did Dr. Manhattan go? And this is the story of where he went and what he did. Um, but at the same time, it kind of was the sequel to Watchmen of like how he changed what you can, I mean, this just came to me like you can look at what Ozymandias was trying to do, what Adrian was trying to do and unite the world. Maybe that's what Manhattan did by putting the hope of like a Superman character, almost a messianic character, if you must into the world that can be raised and be one with them and not be like 
what Manhattan, what people always subscribe Manhattan to be, but he wasn't. I don't know. I kind of went on a tangent there. Well, no, I guess, um, I mean, I, I'm sorry. Maybe I wasn't clear. I, I guess my, my question is more just in the writing of this story, the style of it. Yeah, like, that, is it? That's where I started. And then I just, my brain was like, wait, you're putting other. But, I mean, I, um, I'll, I'll rephrase. Let me say this. So I guess, I, I think there's an argument to be made that we have Jeff Johns mimicking Alan Moore. So I guess my first question is, do you, do you agree with that? Or do you feel like, no, there's, it's not just an imitation. Um, and I feel then, like it's not just an imitation okay. because I feel like there's enough Jeff Johns in there. Okay. Because, you know, say whatever you want about the guy. He's still a really great writer, you know, and I've appreciated and enjoyed most everything I've ever read that he's written. So I can see Johns is wording his fingerprints. It's kind of Jeff John, almost like, a, I don't say a cover band, but you know, like, he he's he's channeling, I guess, the best way, Alan Moore style, but it's still Jeff Johns. Fair so. enough. You know, it's funny. I was thinking about this. I uh, and it's all blending together. I I don't think I said this in the prior episode. Maybe I did. I don't. But uh, I remember in a in a college journalism class, like we had an assignment to write in the voice of an author we chose, and I picked Kevin Smith. And I feel like I did tell this on the last episode. Sorry, but uh, I feel like that's a very dirty paper you wrote. It's yeah. There, I mean, it, I, I didn't lean too heavily into that, but but again, like very verbose and self-deprecating and all that. And like it was an interesting exercise, but it wasn't something I didn't. I wouldn't want to live in that space. And so it's just kind of yeah. interesting when I see what I perceive, and I, you know, and people might disagree, and the the authors will, will, would disagree. But when I see like Scott Snyder writing like Grant Morrison or Jeff Johns writing like Alan Moore, because to me, it's, it's one thing to sort of follow up on threads or ideas, but you know, when, when we sort of are, again, are, are, are more following the style, I guess maybe I bump up against that a, a, a little bit more, but I don't know. Hmm. It's, it's, it's a well done debate. Yeah. It's, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just kind of interesting to me. Now, at the same time, though, all that being said, because I had a little bit of a journey with this, and I, w- I was, I was going to say, and I'll still say it, and this is kind of my flip statement. I was going to say that, uh, you know, Rorschach the second is to Rorschach the first, which Jeff Johns is to Alan Moore, right? Like this successor doing an imitation, but not being as not being the same or not being as effective, but. This is the journey that I had because what I realized, especially as I was reviewing the material again, you know, Rorschach the second, right, has that whole journey and going back to Batman, you know, and so we haven't even said this yet, but right, Rorschach the second is Reggie. He's the son of the psychiatrist who was working with Walter Kovacs, right? And, um, yes. you know, Reggie has received this information from a fellow patient at the facility where he's staying, but it's been, uh, you know, the, the fellow patient Byron Lewis has been selective in terms of what he's shown. So Reggie doesn't have the full picture about how much dealing with Kovacs kind of broke his father, right? So when he initially dons the mask, he doesn't know the full backstory. And as he learns it, it, it kind of shatters his worldview and he wants nothing to do with this Rorschach identity and mask. And it's ultimately Alfred with those delicious pancakes and Bruce at the end, right? Who are able to get through to him and be like, hey, make the mask mean something new, right? Put your own stamp on it. And I feel like, and I know detractors might disagree, but I, to John's credit, I feel like he has a similar journey as Rorschach the second, where he makes he, he this its own thing. It yeah. It's yeah. almost like he inserted himself as a character. Um, the thing I thought was interesting about Rorschach too, 
was the thing that we that you don't get in Watchmen is they talk about the psychic, like a you know, and that's always something I think I was kind of like eh about was the idea that they had a powerful psychic that they hooked up with that alien machine that was actually screwing with people's minds, you know, when besides just killing a bunch of people, he was messing it and that Reggie survived, but you find out that a lot of the government were tracking down survivors and basically mass killing them. And like his brain was all messed up. And like, he's there's times where he's trying to hold on to what he knows is real and not fall into this pit of where, you know, his, his brain was basically scrambled by this, powerful psychic that was, you know, connected to the, the squid, what is the squid? Um, and I thought that was interesting because that wasn't something that was really explored in Watchmen because we didn't have time to do anything with it. I thought that was a great touch too. I mean, the idea, you know, psychic aside, but just the idea of the mental toll, right. For those who survived, but lived through this because look, I, you know, we've recently passed the, you know, another anniversary of nine 11 and, you know, I got, sucked into like a YouTube hole of like watching videos and stuff like that. And, and, it, and it's like, yeah, when you go through that kind of trauma and, and, you know, in the, in the context of this fictional world, like this giant squid monster, like something that is so, you know, so alien, literally, uh, you know, what that would do to you. So the idea that you had all these people in mental institutions, you know, it rang, it rang true. It rang true for yeah. sure. Um, but yeah, I loved, you know, I loved the moment that Batman had with him, uh, and I also just another quick random Batman thing, but it was so funny to me. I thought this was a great touch where midway through the story, right? Joker gets the drop on Batman, right? As a man, he just like drops him out of the ship and uh, Joker actually gets him and has him tied up and like wheels him into the supervillain meeting. And one of them is like, oh, like again, like how many times have you wheeled in someone dressed up like Batman? <laughs> like, so and, he, and he's trying to convince him it's the real Batman. And they're like, ah, whatever. Like, yeah. So again, going back to the central uh, Manhattan and Superman conflict. So, and just this whole idea of of manipulating the timeline, right? So he sees that Superman occupies this unusual space that the universe forms around him. He's you know witnessed these shifts in his timeline and and all of that, and he you know tinkers by removing the lantern. We don't have the Justice Society. If not for the Justice Society, we don't get we don't get Superboy, and we don't get the Legion and the Kent Stye and all of that. And you referenced this earlier. Dr. Manhattan references the New 52 version of Clark uh, and, and describes him as being more, I think, distant or detached from humanity. And he's like, I, I, I identify with this version more. Uh, you know what's funny? Having I've come around a lot on the New 52 Superman, and I, I would definitely say he was more, you know, more on the you know, on, on the brash side and a little bit less restrained. But I don't know, detached from do you agree do you agree with that assessment of the new 52 Superman? I mean, yeah, but I mean, I think in retrospect, you look back, like he lost his parents at a younger age. And I think he had maybe carrying some resentment, anger and guilt through that. Um, It was also trying to be that younger Superman. Like, you know, usually we think of Superman, I think because of the movies and stuff, like he appears like at 30 and this is like, oh, this is, you know, this is Superman. Like if he was in his twenties. You know, like he just starts out and kind of just continues. Um, so I, I could see that. I mean, there's some things, there's some stories I really liked to, in the New 52 with Superman. There's some I didn't. Um, I felt the character was kind of, I feel like that version, 
you can't put such a pinpoint on who the character was. Like it was Superman, but some of the Superman hallmarks weren't there. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting. And maybe it's just a generational thing for us because like when, you know, the rebirth happens and that soup, that other version shows up as like, Oh, this feels like Superman right. that I grew up with, but there's no less validity in the new 52 Superman than there is in the other one. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like I said, I, you know, I've come around a lot on them. I, I suppose. So, okay. When we find out exactly what Manhattan did and why, and then we'll still get to what this is building towards this future that he's seeing or not seeing. Uh, I, I thought that it, it was interesting to see exactly what he had done. Because when you read the rebirth special, Wally comes with this warning that someone stole 10 years, like just ripped 10 years. And that's why they're all younger and there's certain relationships aren't established and mentorships and things like that. And uh, had it just been that, I feel like we would have only gotten so far. So I think this is a far more satisfying explanation for exactly why Manhattan did what he did. This is where I'm torn. Okay. On the okay. one hand, I think it beautifully kind of ties together the history of the DC universe with Superman at the center as this bridge between the past represented by the JSA and the future represented by the Legion. So I think that's cool. And it honors the legacy of 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 the DC universe and of those Justice Society characters who Jeff Johns himself made me a fan of. And I, that was one of the things that always bummed me out about the New 52 is that they, were, they weren't there. They weren't there as the predecessors to the Justice League, right? As these older mentors. I, you know what? Just as a quick, it took me a while reading the New 52 to realize that they weren't there. Aww. Just because like I was reading all the books and like, you know, I was like, oh, they're introducing stuff. And like, it was a while into like, cause I was trying to read everything that I realized, wait a minute something's missing. Yeah. I just didn't think about it at first, but so, so there's a lot to be said for that. And I mean, I guess on a, on a practical note, because there's a conversation that young Clark has before he goes into his prom, uh, with Jonathan and Martha in the car. And we see it play out in the version, uh, of the, the manipulated new 52 timeline, right? Where there's been no JSA. And then we see it play out after Manhattan restores what had been, Right. And essentially what we glean is that without the inspiration of the Justice Society, right, Clark is not inspired to become Superboy. Uh, the advice that Jonathan gives differs, right? Because without the Justice Society, it's like no one's ever seen anyone like you. And I'm worried about how the world will react versus, well, it's been a while, but people have seen people like you before, Clark. Uh, and Clark having that inspiration and becoming Superboy that's what seems to sort of be the, the fulcrum point here. And it's what allows him to be there to save Jonathan and Martha. And I guess like it makes enough sense, but as a Superman fan, and I want to get your take on this, like I'm, I'm a little bit split. Cause I, I guess on the one hand, I'm still coming to terms with Superboy, and boy, wait till we get to next year. But the idea that, you know, the idea that Superboy, him being Superboy is so determinative um, and even the idea of the inspiration, it's like, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know that I need Clark's journey to be so reliant on there having been mystery men in the past. Well, I mean, where do you land on this? Cause I, I also, I don't know, like, I don't have a definitive answer. Like I'm a little, I feel mixed about it. I think to make the JSA work, you kind of need that. Cause that's always been kind of my thing is like, cause I've always wanted to subscribe the, to the JSA as being like, that's earth too. You know, that they're, they're on the earth too. But then when you pull them to the, the main earth and you try to rebuild that history, I think you kind of need that because I, like you, 
I'm not a I'm not so much a fan of Superboy Clark Kent. You know, I like the idea more along what I call like the Smallville. He did things as Clark, but then when he you know decides to reveal himself as Superman, because I always make the joke like, when did he wake up and go, you know what? I am now Superman. I'm not Superboy anymore. You know, and then he's like, you know, don't call me Superboy, Mom. I'm Superman now. Like voice cracks and everything. You know, um, so. I understand where they're going in this story with that. Like he, he, but what would have stopped Clark from saving his parents if he wasn't Superboy? That's the thing. You know, you know it's still Clark with his powers. It kind of just makes me feel like, did he need that inspiration? Because I always look at Clark as the inspiration for the other heroes. Superman reveals himself. The other heroes are, are like comfortable. They reveal themselves. He is like the dawn of DC. Okay. Throw it out there. His appearance is what brings the heroes to the light. It's the, it's the next step from to the superhero. And that's just how I've always looked at it. But if you want the Justice Society to have existed, I think you you kind of need this. Um, you know, when he, when he appeared as Superboy, it's that Gary Frank art. So immediately I thought of Secret Origin. Like, is Jeff Johns just kind of recent? Um, solidifying that his secret origins is Superman's origin, you know? Oh yeah. I 100% um, took it as that. So, I, and I just kind of rolled with it like, okay, because I know my personal feelings on just like, you know, Superboy. I, it's that cold, like Superboy goes to the future with the, you know, and has these adventures with the Legion, then comes back at the exact moment he left, you know, having learned his power from the f- people he inspires in the future almost a little John Connor thing going there. And I have a, I have a crazy Terminator theory. I'll throw by you one time with time travel. Um, when we have more time to chat. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I don't know, but it just feels like wearing a costume doesn't make you Superman or not Superman or Superboy or not Superboy. Clark is just as capable of doing the exact same things. He doesn't have to decide to be out there and be Superboy to save his parents. I think it, it just makes It makes me, it it takes me one step back to having this past of these people who did think that that instill hope in some instance that made people want to aspire to be better. And Clark looked at that inspiration to always want to be better. But I, I always took it that Clark was just always wanting to be better because it was who he is. Someone who wanted to help and do better without even kind of needing that inspiration. He was, it was innate in him. That's the thing. And so that's, that's kind of what I struggle with, with this. And yeah, maybe part of it is being a Smallville fan and watching it for so long. And, and yeah, this idea that I I agree with you. It's like he, even if he didn't have a Superboy name and costume, he still would have saved Jonathan and Martha if it were within his power. So at the same time, I think when you, when you look at the bigger picture, I guess, of what this was trying to accomplish, and as much as, yes, I think centrally it is, it is about Superman, but it is about restoring the JSA and the Legion, right? It's, it, 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 there is this bigger picture component to it. And so I think kind of structurally, it is a very clever touch of you know the moving of that lantern. No lantern, no JSA, no JSA, no Superboy, no Superboy, Mon Padai, no, no Legion in the future. It ties everything together. In my mind, it just makes Clark too reliant on the inspiration of the JSA. And I feel like, uh, I, again, I, I just don't necessarily like that reliance. I like a very light touch, right? Like the notion of, oh, you know, there were these mystery men 
And maybe in the back of his head, that sort of motivates a costume to some extent. But I'm talking like a very, very light touch. Like I don't need that to be kind of a driving thing. And it's not that it was even so, that they were so, uh, you know, hammering that point home in this, but it, it was the key distinction between the two timelines. So I remain, I remain mixed on that. At the same time, when we get to our big conclusion here and you see uh, the restored JSA and Legion and, and Jay Garrick with that helmet coming up and saying to Clark, sorry, we're late, son. And he's like, hey, better late than never. And you get that giant double page spread after page after page of the, that nine panel grid. It's a soaring moment. You know, it's, it's, it's really cool. And again, it, it shows you kind of the picture beyond just Superman. So uh, I, I, I can respect it. And I, I'm, I fall right there with you. Like, I, there's a respect. In, I mean, I'm looking at issue 12 here. And I think one of the, my favorite is like, you know, in this issue, you have Superman fighting all these other metahumans. Like it's him and Dr. Manhattan. And then, you know, like Black Adam shows up with, and he's just getting like pummeled because he's just fighting all of them, you know? And he's yelling at Manhattan, like, why aren't you doing anything? And there's a line that Manhattan says, uh, he says, I remember this feeling. Millions will die, a complicated prospect of peace brought to an unhinged world. Killing Walter Kovacs, I became part of the lie. And I think that's like, it's Manhattan reconciling his role that he played almost in the destruction of the Watchmen world. Because he he stopped Rorschach and he bought into the peace and let it kind of rot. And I think that's part of why he does what he does at the end. Um you know the the other the other big piece of this is what what it's all building to, or at least what Manhattan believes it's building to. So we talked about how he changed the timeline. There's this idea that uh, the innate hope within the universe is fighting back, right? Like Wally West breaking free and everything. And what Manhattan, you know, uh, starts to realize is that looking ahead, I think it's a month into the future, the last thing he sees, right, is Superman coming at him in fury. And then blackness, right? So the question to Dr. Manhattan, and it, it's a binary choice, right? There are only two options. Either Superman destroys him or Manhattan destroys everything. Those could be the only reasons why he doesn't see anything beyond that, right? And so that's, you know, that's what, what all of this is, is building towards. And to him, it, it feels like this, this inevitability. And at this point in the story in issue 12, the, the, the Justice League, right? They're off world, they're on Mars. We talked about that explosion in Russia, which was orchestrated by Ozymandias, um, to make it look like Firestorm initially had, had, you know, killed those people, but the Justice League tracks the energy source to Mars where they find Dr. Manhattan. And again, it's, you know, long story short, Ozymandias ultimately that, realized- I mean, that's a, it's a great issue of just, if you like the characters of like Guy Gardner running his mouth and, you know, Manhattan taking his ring off and crushing it and just- yeah, you get, you know, they John's definitely had fun with the kind of the looser content restrictions because Guy Gardner has a line to Manhattan about Darkseid. He's basically saying, like, you think you can mess with us? We made Darkseid lick the shit off our boots. It's like, whoa, <laughs> whoa. It was, a, it, was a, it was a black label book, man. Yeah, but uh, uh, but anyway, Ozymandias had, we learned this later, but he realized when when his pleas to Manhattan were denied, right? Manhattan did not agree to go back to save their world. Uh, but he talked about this impending collision with Superman. Ozymandias orchestrated events to get the Justice League off planet and to pit Superman and uh, Manhattan against each other, believing, and ultimately accurately, I suppose, 
uh, that Superman would be able to get Dr. Manhattan to act. Uh, but, and that's the other thing too, that's interesting. And, and Manhattan explicitly articulates this, this whole idea that he, you know, he watched comedian shoot a pregnant woman and did nothing, right? He stood by and watched as Ozymandias, you know, uh, brought about the destruction that he did in this, in this misguided attempt for peace. Uh, he is this man of inaction versus the man of action. So I, I you know, kind of at that baseline, uh, conflict, it, it, I bought into it. Yeah. I mean, even just him in, in the panel here where he says, um, oh man, he's looking at Superman. He says, I'm the one that's responsible for killing your parents. Um, well, and, this is like, yeah. you, you know, go ahead. No, I was gonna say, like you just said, um, for the exact quote in the 12th issue is really it's November 2nd, 1985. And then it is that next page that I quoted from that's when the nine panel grid stops. It starts altering. And he's and Manhattan says, will you destroy me for it? Or will, or will I define myself despite my sins? And he just closes his eyes and waits for Superman. And that goes back to what you were saying about that. He's not acting. He's like, are you going to destroy me or am I destroying everything? You're the choice. I'm just, I will react to what you do. And of course we see what Superman does. Yeah. It's, it's really amazing. So again, we have this big battle, all of the metahumans uh, duking it out. And again, all of this tension over the Superman theory and black Adam harboring, uh, you know, metahumans has all come to a head and we've got this big battle and Superman is really just caught in the middle and it's a losing battle with the, really the odds against him and the Justice League off planet and there's no justice society and, and all of that. And, you know, Manhattan arrives and, you know, you, feel, you really feel for Clark in this. There's one point where he's, you know, kind of basically on the ground and he's like, I can't do this alone. Right. Which I, you know, really it was so striking to me, you know, even Superman, right. Has his limits. He's like, I, I can't do this alone. Like, aren't you going to help me? And, you know, to your point, Manhattan's like, no, I don't, I don't intervene here. Right. It's, it's a fact. I don't right? help seen the future. I don't says, help you. He says, I don't help people. Yeah. Straight up says it. And then takes it a step further and explains exactly what you just laid out. Like he says point blank to Clark, I changed your past. I'm the reason why you never met certain mentors. I'm responsible for your parents' deaths. And basically saying like, okay, like now, you know, punish me, punish me essentially. Like what, what are you going to do? And you then get that moment that Manhattan has been seeing in his mind of Superman charging at him in fury, right? But instead he hits one of the metahumans behind Manhattan and, you know, Manhattan, he doesn't know what to make of this. And he's like, why, you know, why essentially? And I mean, it's, it's, I don't have the exact quote top of mind, but Essentially, you know, Clark says some version of like, you know, you think there's, there's, there's only one way here, but I see those photographs, right? That's another piece of this, the, that photograph from, from Watchmen of John with uh, Janie, right? Yeah. That as he's walking through time and through the world, he's generating these photos and, you know, Clark doesn't say this explicitly, but you have to imagine that there's a big part of him that sees these photos that Manhattan is creating. And, you know, that's the other thing too. Clark meets this guy in the middle of, of all this mayhem, right? And so he's getting thrown this, this information, has no idea what's going on, but you know, he sees this and he doesn't say it, but you have to imagine that there's a part of him that sees Lois in that, right? Like, 
I have mm. Lois and I know if, if I were a being like this, I would probably be generating photos of her. So it's like he has some version of, of what I have, right? And maybe there's some sort of connection point there. He says, because he says, uh, you right now you have a choice to make. You talk about me destroying you or you destroying me, but because all you see is beyond this is nothing, but maybe there's a third choice. And then you go to the next panel, which my computer is being a pain in the butt. But he talks about and the photos, Clark, right? And he says like, maybe. Who is she? Yeah. He says, who is she? And Manhattan's like, she? You're creating those fo- photographs er- with every step you take. I assume they're important to you. And, you know, we kind of start to see the replay of how Manhattan was created. He says, she was, and back to Clark, maybe the darkness you see, maybe it takes everything you have to save your world. Maybe you make that choice. Yeah. And, and Manhattan has this moment of realization and reiterates this idea, you know, counter to what he had said in Watchmen of nothing ever ends. Here he says, everything ends. And we see, we see his powers activate and everything goes dark. And I want, we'll come back to that in a second. But um, this whole thing about, you know, you, you think it's one choice or the other. I love this for a variety of reasons calls to mind uh, a line from Alfred from The Dark Knight Rises where he says, he's like, you see only one end to your journey, right? Like sometimes you you, you yes. see, you know, you're kind of like this tunnel vision of you think it has to be one thing or one thing or the other. So Clark kind of being able to open his eyes to another path, but it's also, it, it actually calls to mind two Grant Morrison moments where you, know, you go back to All-Star Superman and the, the unanswerable question of what happens when the immovable force meets the... Um, when the unstoppable force meets the immovable object, right? And he comes up with the answer, right? They surrender. Or in Superman Beyond, where Superman and Ultraman are are merged, right? And it's like hate crime meets selfless act, right? Like these, these opposing seemingly binary forces kind of creating this new path, creating a new answer, creating a new way. And and I think too, like what just stands out about that scene is I, I mean, I don't know if single-mindedness is, is the right term, but it's Manhattan's throwing all of this stuff at him, right? But for Clark, he's present, right? I got another Smallville quote, but right from the 200th episode where uh, he's guided through his past and future by Brainiac, right? And this Love whole, that episode. It's such a great, it's one of my favorites. And, and Brainiac has this whole line about, you know, uh, a hero is made in the moment not by worrying about the past or fearing the future. A hero is made in the moment. So this idea of being in the moment and acting, and you see that motivating Clark, right? Like he's there to navigate that situation in that moment. It's not about what what Manhattan is trying to goad him into doing, right? Like he is there to try to help however he can, however many he can in that moment. Even if that means, again, saving Dr. Manhattan in that, in that instance, Right, this guy who claims to be responsible for all of these calamities that have been that have befallen him. So it's just it's such a great said, Superman like, moment. Because he's like, I don't even know what to make all this, but I see this is happening right now. Yeah. So he's not even like giving like, okay, you're responsible. Okay, you know what? Listen, it's like it's kind of like sometimes when you're a parent and your kids like, well, you know, I have the two, you just have the one, so you haven't experienced this yet. Um, blah, 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 did this. No, Sailor did this. Solomon did this. So he hit me first. And you're just like, stop. This is what we're doing now. Like you just, you just push, like, I don't care what happened in the past, what you're saying. We're going to act on what is going on currently and how we're going to move forward. And I feel like that's kind of 
what Superman does here is he talks to Manhattan like, I don't know what all you're saying about this, but I do see what this is in front of us now. Exactly. It's it's a great moment. And you know, also going back to uh, that scene in Russia with Firestorm when he gets between, you know, Firestorm and, and the Russian heroes and government and it, you know, really creates this whole geopolitical kerfuffle. But, you know, there too, it's like it's it's really putting him in a tough spot, but he's operating from a place of just trying trying to help, right? And you I, I think in that scene and in this one where he's pleading with Manhattan, like I can't do this alone, like you have to help me. I feel like the story does a good job of showing his frustration and also, again, this idea that we always come back to of, you know, he, like Superman acts the way he does because he believes other people would too, right? If given the opportunity and given the means. And so, you know, you I think you, like you feel the frustration where, you know, that unfortunately doesn't always, you know, doesn't always bear out. But I love, and that's, you know, in this book, those are the two scenes, like I think we get the most of Superman in that, in that Russia issue and, and then certainly in the finale. So I think they're great showcases for the character. I, yes. <laughs> I mean, it's a, this, this last issue is a great, just who is Superman type thing. Like what, why do we like the character? Well, you know, this is a good example. Um, I do want to point out that, you know, as Dr. Manhattan's helping him and he's like kind of ending everything that Jeff John gets away, gets away with one, two pages of pure black. <laughs> like, like, Hey, Hey, we're going to print an entire one single page of blackness. Then a nine panel grid of blackness. Then it starts. <laughs> I know. Great. Awesome. <laughs> Just listen, it had been a long two years and I think, <laughs> needs to get that last issue out before the year ended uh but yeah and it's so we have all of that blackness for a while i mean it, you know all kidding aside it has it has an impact and it starts with that rocket right and again this notion the rocket arrives a child is loved superman is made this time alan scott gets the lantern clark has a different conversation with ma and pa before the prom he's there as superboy to rescue them we have the legion in the future um, so kind of the, the world that we had known before the flashpoint before, before the new 52 has been, uh, has been restored. And in the process of this, we get some, uh, I guess some interesting insight into how the DC multiverse, uh, operates according to Jeff Johns <laughs> by way of Dr. Manhattan, where, uh, there are a couple of pieces. Number one is, uh, the notion that our universe, the DC universe uh, that, that we follow is, is the metaverse. It's the one where when changes occur, they reverberate and they ripple out across the other universes within the multiverse. So ours is the metaverse, the prime, whatever you want to call it, right? But it's kind of that, that center point, right? That ripples out when there are changes. And then this idea that all the other Earths exist to preserve every era of Superman, so when Barry Allen in 1956 accessed the Speed Force, right, it rattled the the multiverse or the you know and uh, and created Earth Two, right, to preserve that 1938 version of Superman, and that after mm. Crisis on Infinite Earths, that gave rise to Earth 1985, which is as it says in the in the book here, still unexplored which preserved that pre-crisis version of Superman. The idea that like any time 
the timeline is changed, or I guess even more specifically changed back, that prior version now exists as its own Earth, right, within the multiverse. So Manhattan talks about how there's Earth 52 out there. So like this, now we're no longer in the 52 timeline, but that that has now been preserved as its own Earth, again, to preserve every era of Superman. Like it all revolves around Clark. How do you take all of that? I, as a Superman fan, I love it because <laughs> it does make him the focal point. And I think it is worth exploring. I mean, we, we know that comics change in the retcon, but I think it is a very interesting w- way of looking at things and exploring how it works. I mean, you just got to kind of go, okay, because it's a neat idea, you know, and then, you know, um, Cause it's not going to be perfectly aligned. Like it's not going to work perfectly because how many like things where you're like, wait, like, does that really line up? But you know what? You just kind of, okay. So I think the metaverse is an interesting idea. Um, you know, so I, I, you know, I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, I, it's funny, I guess then and now, you know, we're, we're, we were at the point that we were at 52 uh, universes within the multiverse. This seems to expand that. And there, and Manhattan even says that each time one of the, these is created, the multiverse grows. So that seems to kind of, it's out. Be the reason why it was crisis on infinite earth or dark right. crisis on infinite earth is like the idea, like it's infinite. Yeah. And then I also now, of course, I'm, I, my head is spinning as I'm trying to reconcile this with, with the, with the, endless uh, world building that Scott Snyder has done in the, in the metal events where we have the dark multiverse and uh, I look at the dark multiverse. Okay. Kind of like the upside down. Listen, if you take out, if you take out the map, I'm out of (laughs) here. No, no. I just think of it like the, the stranger things thing. Like this is the multiverse. Here's the dark multiverse. It's the upside down. Yeah. To the multiverse. I, That's how I look at the dark multiverse. To be honest, the like, dark the dark multiverse is the easiest part of this, but the Snyder run, right, established the omniverse, the idea that it's not just a multiverse. There are multiple multiverses, which just feels like a hat on a hat. It's like, what are we doing here? It's 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 just all a way of saying that everything counts and everything matters and we can do whatever we want. Which fair, but that's which the, which, which means that nothing matters. Well, that's an interesting point, and I, there might be something to that. I think what I bump up against is I feel – and this is – I don't know. Maybe this is more of a something for next episode. But like I feel like we creators keep giving, keep giving us and themselves ways to allow for everything. Like Grant Morrison and Mark Wade did this with Hypertime. Like we had this in the 90s. Or I guess we had it before with the infinite, you know, the, the multi-infinite Earths in the first place, but then they gave it to us with hypertime. You could you could go anywhere with that, and that never really caught on. Now, of course, it's you know getting referenced and it's part of things again. Um, and then Mark Wade's writing it. <laughs> He's like, I'm bringing my stuff back. But but here, like I guess this is, this is what I'm getting to. I feel like Jeff Johns gave us, I think, a really elegant solution to all of this that gave us this meta look, right? I think that's the other thing that was so striking to me about this is Dr. Manhattan is looking at the DC universe the way we look at it, right? Like we know it started in 1938, but then through retcons, Superman appeared later, right? And things have shifted. Like we see that. 
So Manhattan is essentially seeing the publishing history of the DC universe, and he's seeing the crisis events, and he's seeing the changes. Um, so I like that aspect. But then this whole idea that every time it changes, whatever it's changed to or or changed back from, whatever, however you want to put it, like that world continues, right? So that 1938 version is there, the 1985 version is there, like they're all the new 52 version is there. So I guess I feel like we we had a way to account for everything and and sort of getting back into this omniverse business and I haven't read Dark Crisis yet I'm getting there but I my understanding is they bring back the you know the pre-crisis infinite earths it just feels like But my thing is didn't didn't Dr. Manhattan just establish why there is infinite earths you know and he's he's talking about cuz I mean even in this panel he says it's January 26th the timeline is restored earth 5G is born it is June 17, 2026. Superman goes on a quest to find Bruce Wayne's lost daughter so that so that she can save Bruce's son. It is in wake. Superman's timeline shifts forward again. 2030s, the secret crisis begins, throwing Superman into a brawl across the universe with Thor himself. like And the green Goliath. <laughs> yeah, like stronger than even Doomsday, who dies protecting Superman from the invaders. Like... So are we waiting, you know, another seven years for the secret crisis by Jeff Johns? You know what I'm saying? So, like, I feel like he already reestablished. And I think that goes back to what I was saying. Like every writer is trying to one up each other and just do this big grandy thing where I'm like, it's getting to be so much that I don't even care about it because I can't keep up. I don't care about the characters. They just keep throwing more and more of these massive cataclysmic events. And like, if you didn't do something like doomsday clock or whatever dark, I mean, dark crisis like I read it, it was okay. I'd have to reread it again, but it feels like this kind of sequel to Crisis on Infinite Earths. But then it's like it works if you were to go from one to the other, but all the stuff in between, you're just like, huh? Like that's the thing. I mean, whether it's it's one upsmanship or just the timing of this, they're overlapping these events, and I feel like they are over-explaining, Right. Uh, even if they're not outright contradicting, but they're over explaining something where, again, I feel like with Doomsday Clock, you got a really, really beautiful explanation for all of this that was grounded to me more in emotion and Superman. Uh, so obviously I'm going to like that. So to go from that to, again, the never ending architecture of Scott Snyder and his, you know, and, and the world forger and the monitors and the sixth dimension is the control room of the omniverse. And it's I'll save it for next episode. But Again, I just feel like this was a really beautiful way of doing it. So again, I agree. and we end with what we've already talked about with all the heroes, you know, kind of converging and winning the day and Clark, the last time we see Clark and Lois in the story reuniting with, with Mon Pa. Now we don't, I, it doesn't seem like they know what, what they had lost. What happened. Right. You know, the, the quote here, he is the bridge stretching across generations that will lead everyone to peace. It is a beautiful way of saying everything counts, everything matters. Yeah. It's just, yeah. yeah. And with his inspiration, yeah. you know, at, at the heart of it. And I, listen, I give Jeff Johns a, a, a lot of crap for kind of always going to this well of, of killing a parent essentially. Right. He made a part of his origin. He made a part of a massive part of Barry's origin. And though he didn't make a part of his origin, early on in his tenure on Superman, right? Killed off Jonathan Kent. Now I want to give him props in two respects. Number one, the fact that he brought back both Jonathan and Martha at the end of doomsday clock, because it could have just been the one. So I, I appreciate that. Also though, 
I, what I will say about the the killing Jonathan, um, you know, before the new Fifty Two, at least it was, you know, it was new territory. I, I think there is an argument to be made where it's not like he retconned the origin, right, and made Jonathan's passing part of that, which we've seen many times. Like this was Clark losing his father as an adult. Just like Superman and Lois, right? The show starts off with Clark losing Martha and that brings him back to the farm. And as we get older as adults, I mean, sadly, that is a part of the human experience. And so, uh, you know, I, I feel like at least that that to me felt like, oh, we're not just, we're not retconning an origin and, and you know, placing mm-hmm. that back there, but we're actually exploring new emotional territory. So I, I'll, I'll give them that. I, I agree. So I'm just yeah. What what have we not talked um, about with Doomsday Clock that you wanted to that we'd be remiss in not talking about? I think we hit everything. I'm like, um, I'm just like I'm just I'm standing here looking at the twelfth issue and I just I just I just read it and I'm rereading because I just like it's just so fascinating and so great. And he talks about you know he leaves behind Marionette and Mime on the D the DC universe, you know. He says, I see my final purpose. And, you know, he talks about his anchor was Carver Coleman. And that's such an interesting how that, you know, plays out that John basically interacts and Coleman doesn't die and grows old and becomes a huge component for the LGBTQ movement. That's such a side story in the back, but it's it's really, you know. That was one of the things I wanted to ask you about. So, uh, you know, when when John Manhattan, John Manhattan, when <laughs> Doctor Manhattan arrives on on our Earth, Carver Coleman is the first person he sees, and Coleman becomes his anchor. When Manhattan shows up, he can't see into the past or the future. He hasn't acclimated yet to this universe, and he's sort of able to focus his vision, so to speak, through Carver Coleman, this closeted actor who's trying to make it in Hollywood. And they have these annual check ins. I suppose. And John kind of tells him his future more or less. It kind of points, it gives him career advice. Essentially he's his agent. And, uh, and, and again, we see, and then ultimately Coleman is murdered by his estranged mother and her boyfriend who are trying to blackmail him, uh, about his sexuality. And, you know, throughout the story, we see snippets of his final movie, the adjournment where he, um, is being hired as a private investigator by this cop. And it turns out the woman he was in love with, uh, who had seemingly died was actually still alive and was using him to, uh, you know, make moves against, uh, her her husband, this mob boss. Anyway, what I want to ask you is, and this goes back to what I was saying before about, you know, you know, Jeff Johns like channeling Alan Moore, how effectively is he doing it? Yeah, this is essentially the stand-in for Tales of the Black Freighter. I mean, wh- which do you feel served yeah. a more meaningful purpose in their story? The Carver Coleman. Oh, really? I feel like I feel like the Tales. I'd have to go back and really dig into it, but I feel like the Tales of the Black Freighter is just kind of like the Watchmen kind of ideals and stories about descent and like it's kind of giving us hints of what's going on. Whereas the Carver Coleman kind of cements something with Dr. Manhattan with his anchor, like why he keeps returning to him, how he's almost kind of seeing things with him and is using him kind of as his way of starting to connect to our world and how he affects. So this guy's life so much. And then at the last moment, he's kind of needed the most he's absent and look what happens. But when he is there, he changes things even more for the better. So Fair enough. I guess I feel, I, I guess I feel the, the flip of that where with, I mean, I think me- mechanically 
the Carver Coleman piece is far more tangible here in this story. Like you get what this is all about and why we're seeing this character and what purpose he serves for, for Manhattan. I guess thematically with Tales of the Black Freighter, it's like you see this guy who is twisted into this monster, but is so misguided. Like he thinks he's the hero of the story. He thinks he's doing everything that he should be doing, right? And he's ultimately the monster. And I, I you know, I feel like that's a, an effective parallel for you know, Ozymandias and his whole plot. But it, and that's what I'm saying. Like it works as a parallel to that. But I think the Carver Coleman stuff, it serves the same purpose, but yet at the same time, it's not a one-to-one ratio. I have to say, I got a, another another moment that that reminded me of a, of a Grant Morrison scene where, uh, when when all the heroes have been restored and everything, and they're in battle, Manhattan looks at Clark and he says, "I'm inspired. I see the man of tomorrow." And it just it makes me think of All Star Superman when Clark is having his his near death experience and he sees Jor El and Jor El's like, "You've shown them the face of the man of tomorrow." Uh, eh, just made me think of that, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, Clark was able to, you know, enact this this change right within this detached, godlike being, um, just by just by being who you know by being who he is and by leading by example. So, it's great stuff. Uh, oh, last thing, one thing that was odd. I mean, I'm glad that this was so Superman centric. I wouldn't have wanted it to be any other way. But I feel like. I feel like Barry needed something to do here because he, you know, he was responsible for the flashpoint. We thought he was responsible solely for the new 52 and, uh, you know, and the rebirth special, right. is all about Wally, like breaking through and making his way back. So it was a little odd to me. I was like, Oh, like nothing, there's really nothing for Barry to do here. I, I do feel that the Barry and Wally being absent was weird about how Wally was the one that broke free, knew there was something up and started to, through his stories and rebirth, reconnect people when he would touch them, you know? Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Look again, I, I don't, not to make this about metal and death metal, but it, it's sandwiched in between them. And I'm in the midst of reading all of them. And I just have to say, I mean, this, this is the kind of story that I want. I mean, this to me feels emotionally resonant and satisfying and I don't know. I, I feel like it accomplishes a lot more in a shorter span of time and issues than, than those other events. But, you know, to, to each their own. I, the, I will say, too, I know you had said, like, it's a dense book. I, like, I don't disagree with that. But at the same time, I, like, this was not I don't want to say it was a brisk read, but it was not. It was a relatively quick read for what it is. I feel like I was expecting what it is. Yeah. I was expecting like, oh, man, I'll be here for hours and hours. But it, it moves. It does move. Well, I mean, Jeff Johns doesn't write the extensive dialogue that Moore does. That's true. You know, and one thing. But I mean, I think when I say dense, like it starts, think of it like this. Like it starts here. Then in the middle, there's all this layered stuff that, like we talked about, doesn't really get paid off the way you would think. And then it kind of smooths out and rides out. Because like I I could reread this last issue over and over just where men – it's like the story – gives a final, like this really is Manhattan's swan song because like it is like, where did he go? What did he do? How did he end? And it tells us the story of how Dr. Manhattan ends for something that says nothing ever ends. He shows that he did end in a way, but he was also in a way, you know, rebirthed um, much like a father to a child in, in the Clark that he creates to be the protector who would know love 
and be the thing that his world is missing. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, listen, I, I, I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed revisiting it and having this discussion with you. And I, you know, I appreciate you coming along for the ride and yeah, it's, it's a, it's a funny, I feel like if you gave the whole thing is worth reading, but I feel like if you gave people issues 10 and 12 in particular, <laughs> like you would, uh, you know, for the non-Watchmen fans who might not be as into this, I feel like if you gave them those two issues and you really see Dr. Manhattan's kind of view of the DC universe and his statement on it and on Superman, uh, I, I feel like that, I feel like those, those issues really carry a lot of the weight of this. And I feel like, yeah, I don't know. I feel like there are probably like, I'll use as an example, like, uh, uh, you know, fellow guest, Rich Roney, like he's not a Watchmen guy at all. I don't even know if he's read the entire Doomsday Clock. Even if he has, I guarantee you, if you said to him, like, oh, like, what did you like about it? Like, he, whether he said those issues by number or not, he would instantly go to those two issues. And so I don't know. I feel like those kind of color, you know, our view of the whole thing. But looking at it the way we did for this, I feel like it, it you know, it, it does hold up. And yeah, no, I'm a fan. I was a fan and I, I remain one. Yeah, I, I liked it when it came out and I like it even more now. And I think if I wait a year or two and then revisit it again, I'll get more out of the whole story, you know. Um, and maybe I'll wa- read it up against Watchmen and kind of look at it from that lens a little bit more. I don't know. But I think it is a really well done story. You know, we are getting it this. might be. No, go ahead. It might be one of the best things Jeff Johns has written. I don't know. That's something to think about, but. I, t- I mean, I, gra- mm. I gravitate a lot more to uh, more early career Jeff Johns. I feel like he's, he's, you know, maybe gotten a little, a little self-indulgent and uh, I feel like he's probably not told no a lot. And I, I don't know. I look back at the, the early, the flash run and the JSA stuff and Green Lantern Rebirth. And that to me is kind of I... like peak, but th- this is, yeah. I mean this, you know, this is one of, I think this is one of those kind of evergreen books that I think you'll always see on shelves at, at shops uh, and that people will continue to go to and, and discover. Uh, yeah. And we are getting this Watchmen animated adaptation. So I'm kind of, I might have an episode in me on, maybe I'll reread the book and watch the movie, the animated movie, and talk about it. I kind of planning something along similar of like just discussing it openly, not doing a super in-depth dive, but like, once I know more about what this animated movie really like, what is it? You know, is it the the book? Is it an animated movie? Is it a sequel? Is it the before Watchmen? Like, what is it? You know what I'm saying? Are they going to do a trilogy? Like a, they're going to do before Watchmen, the animated movie. They're going to do Watchmen, the animated movie, and then Doomsday Clock, the animated movie. Like, what is this Watchmen thing? So I, I'm just kind of sitting back like, now oh, we'll see. You know, uh, and I will let you go because I know we've been going for a while and it's late here and I'll let the audience go. But I think I, I, I came across it. I think Zack Snyder was asked if he would have any interest in adapting Doomsday Clock. And I, I, I either it was an outright no or it was, you know, basically no. Uh, but, you know, it's like given that he did Watchmen and sort of considering like his version of the DC universe colliding with that. I would, I'd be on. Board. Oh, I know. I'd be on board. I mean, what I mean, what even cements it more is he did Watchmen's with Larry Fong as his DP, and then BVS. He's got Larry Fong back as his DP, and they just look like they need to line up together. 
Like I think Larry Fong is a great cinematographer in general. Like I like a lot of his work, but I'm just saying like those two films, like look like they're in the same universe that I could see, you know, him doing doomsday clock as a film. And that would be a dream in a sense, in a, in a way. I mean, it would be really interesting because it would rectify everyone's problem with Superman stuff from the Snyderverse. Like instead of doing like justice league part two, he just does doomsday clock. <laughs> and it's like, I mean, it would be the capper amongst cappers, but we could go down that I rabbit know. hole. I mean, it, tie, it would tie everything together and it would be his coda and it would, I think it would rectify what a lot of, you know, the problems that a lot of people have with his version of stuff. At the same time, I don't, I don't really see him adapting. I don't see him doing it for a variety oh, no. of reasons, especially adapting a Jeff Johns work. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> oh, I know. Like it, it's, there's too many. It's just one of those things like, that's a nice sentiment. Yeah. But I want, I do wonder, you know, with this animated, I think it's an, a straight animated adaptation of the movie, but I really have no idea. But, you know, in success, I wonder if we could see a version of Doomsday Clock, you know, kind of in animated form, if nothing else. Anyway, thank you very much for this. I encourage everyone to check out the Krypton Report podcast available on all major podcast platforms and social media. Is there any, any place in particular you want to send people or any, any episode in particular you want to plug anything else you want to share? Nah, just check us out. Uh, September has been a little bit of a slower month for us. Like we're putting out at least one episode a week, but it just seems slow. Usually I feel like you put out like three a week. I know. Cause I'm usually like really in like into it and like, but this month just been a lot of changes in my life and you know, my co-host has been busy and stuff. So it's kind of slowed it down. Everybody has some time to breathe. Your show is like the, like, like the daily planet. It's like, it really is like the daily newspaper of, of Superman podcast. I know you don't put them every day, but like it, the frequency, it really has that, you know, that feel to it. It's cool. Thank you. I appreciate that. I kind of keep up with everything and you know, there's been a lot of slowness on the DC side and stuff. So We've just kind of been taking a little bit of break because, you know, I don't like to burn people out. So, but, no, I hear you. Yeah, check us out. I say yeah. I don't want to burn people out as we as we end another two plus hour podcast. Thank you, audience, as always. I hope, <laughs> I'm glad people have been into but this I, event. It's been a lot I of mean, fun. I mean, if you're gonna, go, it's just like if we were reviewing Watchmen. Like you can't just go into it and not expect a couple hour discussion. And especially now that you have the movie as well to talk about. If we were just doing the book, if we were saying, okay, we're going to just talk about the book. And then we do another podcast, like just about the movie. Like that's a couple hours, you know? Yeah. Listen, I love, I like doing these big meaty episodes. It's funny. Cause it's like, yeah, of course we could have done an episode on doomsday clock one through six and then another one on seven through 12. But I like, this is, this is the conversation I want to have where we're kind of, we're, we're weaving through everything. Anyway, thank you, Tyler. Thank you. Audience. Make sure you come back in one week for the penultimate installment of Red Skies. We'll be getting into the second half of Scott Snyder's Justice League run and death metal. Please continue to pray for me as I make my way through this reading material. And I look forward to delivering what I'm sure will be a fun episode. And then the week after that, Dark Crisis, and we'll be done with our event. So keep tuning in. And of course, as always, it's about what you do. It's about action. This show is part of the Flat Squirrel Podcast Network. Home to Digging for Kryptonite, another exciting episode in The Adventures of Superman, Summoning the Zords, and My Comic Shop History, available wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review today. Sign up at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato for additional content. Thank you all.